unique look at sports that centers in on the mental as well as the physical side of sports and coaching. T.K. Griffith and Scott Matthew Callahan are your hosts, and between them, they bring over 50 years of coaching experience to the table with success in both boys' and girls' athletics. Their expertise comes from the locker room, the classroom, and their living room. Now, the Teacher Coach with TK and Scott. Welcome, everybody, to the Teacher Coach Podcast here at Brook Point Studios on another kind of yucky Ohio day in mid-May. The sun is not out today. The rain has been falling here, folks, for about two and a half hours. It's probably in the uh, upper 40s, maybe mid-50s today. So, uh, yeah, we're in Ohio, stuck in Ohio, as the bumper stickers say. However, it's a great opportunity to dig into the life of another phenomenal basketball coach uh, in Wadsworth's Andy Booth, whose career has been well-heralded across the state of Ohio. Uh, he's one of the most respected teacher coaches um, in the girls' basketball world, but really in, in the basketball world. I hate to say the girls' basketball world because I think that's where people kind of trip up. Uh, basketball is basketball, and Andy Booth is a phenomenal coach no matter what side he would be on. He just happens to be on the girls' side at Wadsworth, Ohio. Um, Andy, before we get started, and I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to any of our episodes here, um, this Scott and I decided to start the Teacher Coach Podcast because we love the model of the teacher coach, both literally and philosophically. Literally, I mean the guy who's in the building all day long um, teaching uh, uh, academics, whatever he might teach. We, we teach English, so I have AP and Honors English and another class called Newspaper at Hoban. Scott has his uh, slew of classes. But we like that model where the teacher then goes to the field or the court and becomes an extension of the school building uh, and, and gets down and, 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 and impacts kids in a co-curricular fa- fashion. And then philosophically, we just like the growth mindset of a teacher coach in our life, even if that person isn't necessarily even either a teacher or a coach. Maybe perhaps it's just somebody who influences us. Maybe it's a college professor. Uh, Maybe it's uh, even a neighbor who uh, taught us how to fix our car or something like that. So I guess before I get started into your journey, uh, Coach Coach Booth, what, where do you um, see this this whole philosophy of the teacher coach in your life? And is, is it something that you hold in high esteem? Well, I, I think I'm right on the same wavelength with, with everything you just said about the, the teacher then moving right from his class, her class, uh, and going right onto the court and um, down the road, I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, you, you mentioned my journey and, and we'll get into that a little later, but there was an opportunity that I had earlier that I did not take because there was no teaching position there. Mm-hmm. And I believe, uh, you know, whole, wholeheartedly that if you can to be in a, it doesn't have to be a hundred percent, but it certainly yeah. helps to be in that same building yeah. and then transition right to the court. And yeah. Um, so just, just so, um, just so listeners um, can kind of get a feel of, of your daily life, Coach. What, what is your teaching assignment? And over the years, what has it been at Wadsworth? Well, I was hired. Uh, this is my 16th year at Wadsworth. So when I was hired, they, I was a special education teacher um, for a few years at Mansfield Madison. So when I interviewed for the job, they were just starting. Um, at that time was called the SBH severe behavior handicap mm-hmm. special ed program. They had never had that unit at the Wadsworth high school. Mm-hmm. Um, now it's called ED emotional disturbance. Yes. Um, not very flattering right. names, but that's a whole different subject, but um, they, they never had a unit at the high school. So mm-hmm. um, being a special ed certified person and a special ed teacher. Yeah. Um, I think that was one of the selling points for my particular 
right. instance um, yeah. when I interviewed there. So right. that's the, the assignment I've had yeah. ever since I've been there. Yeah. Coach, both, both of my parents were in special education. Uh, my dad, Tim Griffith, was a director of special ed for uh, the Kent City School District, and they, they were on the cutting edge. They were they were known to be one of the first districts in the state to implement uh, a lot of the a lot of the new um, not 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 only uh, integrating special ed kids into the into the regular classroom, but some other changes as well. So a lot of districts would send their kids to Kent in the seventies and eighties. And my my dad, I, I kind of lived that life. My mom was also in that field as a professor at Kent State. She she taught kids how to be special ed teachers. So I'm just curious um, if you're in the ED classroom, if that's what we want to call it right now. Where, where does your um, I mean, you need to have a lot of uh, patience and I guess love. Um, for, for the kids that you work with, where, where does your, uh, how have you developed that kind of patience and that kind of, um, I guess, wherewithal to, to do a great job during the school day? Well, it's interesting. You mentioned your parents. My parents were both special ed- education um, professionals as well. My dad wow. was the director of special ed for Mansfield City Schools really? for umpteen years. Wow. And, uh, and my mom was a special ed teacher huh. and became a liaison with Richmond County. And she would go out to all the different, the seven different public high schools. Yeah. In county. So that's kind of where my background was in terms of uh, even getting into this field. Um, in terms of patience, I don't know that that's something that um, I guess you can always learn. I think every day is a learning experience and you can learn to be patient. But I think that um, for me, it's just like I was fortunate enough that I, I guess, for lack of a better word, I was born with that patience. Uh, yeah. I'm a pretty calm guy by nature. And um Okay. You know, I guess you learn a few tricks over the years, but the, yeah. but the calmer you are with mm-hmm. those kids, with any kid, yeah. but uh, those kids in particular yeah. that I deal with daily, yeah. the more you're able to listen, right. and talk with them, yeah. and when they're agitated, not to get agitated along with them, Yeah. Um, I think that certainly helps out. Yeah. That's funny because, Coach, I, I see a basketball coach oftentimes on the sidelines be the opposite of those things. Um, they're not always, uh, patient. They're, they're not always just listeners. Um, <laughs> they, instead of not getting agitated, they get agitated. Um, does that carry over or do you have to be a Jekyll and Hyde when you go to the court or do you carry some of those same characteristics over to the court? I would like to think I carry some of those over. Now, the okay. funny thing is I just, well, I'm 53 years old and this is my 29th year of coaching and yeah. it feels like to me, I don't know what you guys feel like, mm-hmm. but. I would have thought as a younger coach, and I think I was pretty patient back then. Yeah. I would think that patience would be something that continue would continue to grow. And I'd be more patient at this point in my career, (laughs) but I don't know that I necessarily feel like that. Right. Um, I feel like being patient is a little bit harder for me, whatever the reason is. I don't know. Yeah. Because I've been around so long and have been involved. Yeah. um, You know, you kind of expect the kids maybe to know, what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I still think I'm a pretty patient guy, but right. Maybe trending away from that. So that's something yeah. I'm working. With. Yeah. You know, I, I, I kind of feel, um, in ways the same coach. And I wonder if it's this, I wonder if it's, and, and I'm not trying to, uh, praise ourselves, but I mean, we know more about the game now, now, and, and we know what the game is supposed to look like. And when we don't see it, maybe the way that we know it's supposed to look like, it's easier to get agitated because I think the more you know, you know, the more you also know when it's not right. I think you're exactly right. And, and um, 
it's funny that you say that because when things aren't going well in a practice or a drill or a game, yeah, um, that, that lack of patience certainly shows up for me <laughs> more than it used to, I think. So. Yeah. Don't you guys think another factor is the older we get, and we're all about the same age, we've all coached about the same number of years, uh, the more we value how much little time we have left. And, and we realize, too, I think, how quickly the season goes by. And um, maybe just the older we've gotten, we valued that time a little bit more, but also we've recognized urgency. I think, Scott, I think that's a great point. And um, not only in terms of us personally, I think, but also since we have been around so long, I think we realize more so now how quickly the time goes by for these kids. Exactly. And you want them to have the most success that they can have. And you understand that each year, at least for me, and I'm sure for you guys, goes by in a blink of an eye. It's like we start in October and now we're done. Yeah. And I just graduated two seniors that were four-year players for me. And it's just so hard for to look back and see, man, that four years is gone. Yeah. You know? So I, I think those are great points. Hey, Andy, I want to get back to your classroom for a second. You know, I've been blessed for the last 16 years to teach in the same building as you. Um, one of the things that always amazes me about you as a teacher is you don't seem to get discouraged. And if you are discouraged, you don't show it. You don't show it to your colleagues, and you certainly don't show it to your students. And the reason I bring up that word discouragement is, is because you're constantly having to advocate for the kids in your classroom um, because they're fighting so many things um, and maybe not getting the support outside of your room that they need to get. Um, how do you not get discouraged? Well, First of all, I think that the kids that I see on a daily basis, they've, by the time they get to ninth grade, which is the first time that I see them, they've had to grow, go through preschool, kindergarten, and eight, all the way up through eighth grade with probably, in most cases, um, nothing but negative feelings probably about the school, their right. classes, their academics, their social status. Um, so... I think one thing that I try to do, especially for those new freshmen that I see every year and then kind of continuing on through their career is just to give them a room and a place and a person, I guess, most importantly, where they can feel like someone has their back. You know, someone is there, in my case, guy that's going to take care of them. And I'm not afraid to tell them that I'm, I'm going to tell them, hey, listen, it's not going to be a smooth road, but it's going to be sometimes where maybe we don't get along, which is okay, but I'm always going to have their back. I'm always going to support them. They, you try to do the right thing. I'm going to try to do right by you. And uh, just to make sure that they know whatever their situation is at home or even outside uh, my classroom, that that's a safe place where they can come and I'm going to be there for them. Um, even on those days that we're not getting along great, mm -hmm. they know that we're going to, that I'm going to, still support them and, and have their best interests at heart. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love what you said. You're always going to have their back because I think for our own children and the, the students and then the athletes that we're dealing with that come into our lives, that's all they want. They, they, sure. they want to develop a trusting relationship with an adult who's going to encourage and support them. 
Um, Andy, for someone who's never been in a classroom like yours, could you kind of just describe, like, are you teaching these kids for multiple periods of the day? Um, what's your classroom setup like? Because I know it's not traditional. Right. I have on my caseload up to 12 kids per year, and that, that can change. Um, this year was kind of a funny year. I had four of my students either move in the summer or move right after the school year begins. So one thing about my clientele, at least, is they seem to be very transient. Mm -hmm. um, that goes back to the, maybe a little bit of the unsettled home life. But I have kids come and go all the time. But the way my classroom works, and I know this is different in every school, but in terms of our ED program at Wadsworth, and again, being the one that was first, the first and only ED teacher in Wadsworth High School history, I guess, I've been able to kind of set it up how I think it should be run or how it works best. But um, to kind of, in a nutshell, I stay in my home base in my room all day long. I don't get outside and travel. And the reason I don't do that is because if I... First of all, I try to get my kids out of my classroom. I do not want them in there when they can be out learning in Scott Callahan's class or Mark Postak's, Mark Postak's math class or um, John Supon, Joe Supon's wood shop. I don't want them stuck with me all day, for lack of a better term. So what I, the reason I stay in my room is because if they need to come back and see me or they need a place where they can feel that they can go to, I'm there for them. Um, I have two aides, full-time aides, that they kind of get out in the classroom. Let's say a kid um, needs a little extra support on a certain day or maybe every day. Uh, we will have that, one of the ladies go with that person to give them that support. Um, that's, that's how I work with my caseload. Um, maybe kind of a different, or a, lack of a better word, a weird uh, situation for me is I also kind of catch an overflow of students whose schedule may not work out in the guidance department will for example this year i had four senior english students mm -hmm. who because they were in vocational programs or special ed students not not on my caseload not ed kids but just special ed kids who um, needed a senior english class i taught them senior english right. um so i'm i can sort of certification wise i can teach english in any of the history. So I had a government econ senior, one girl. I had the four English seniors who came to my room to learn to go get their senior English class. Um, I had an American history, one sophomore. I had five world history freshmen. So it can look many different things. Last year, the year before this, my first period class, I had three different assignments going on or three different classes going on. So it can be um, a little different, let's say, but that's kind of how the world of special ed works. You've got to um, be able to be flexible, bend, twist, but hopefully not break and um, <laughs> right. those kids' needs. Right. So my class can look like a lot of different things. Yeah. And I'll serve many more kids that are just on my caseload during the yeah. course of a day. Coach, uh, so much I want to dig into, but while we're in the classroom, I just know um, over the course of a season, I mean, I've seen you. I've heard you put more work into into your season than, than probably uh, most coaches in the area, and uh, I also uh, want to believe that I'm a worker. I know Scott's a worker, um, and you get in early and, and you, you go home late. I mean, with that teaching load and those responsibilities, especially having to remain patient 
and I'm going to say loving for the kids, or at least a, a rock for the kids. That's a good um, one. You know, how, how do you take care of yourself during the season so that you're not frazzled? Um, you know, do you have anything you do self-care-wise to kind of stay sane? Uh, very good question. I don't know if I have anything specific. I think I have um, a very good support group at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife, is Rachel, is fantastic. She's uh, um, someone that I can share a lot of things with. And when I get home after a lo- long day, mm-hmm. she's very good about taking care of me or yeah. you know, kind of reads me well. Yeah. Um, um, I have two great kids that are now off doing their own thing, but, um, you know, I don't know that I have one specific thing. Basketball is such a passion for me. If I come home after a long day, I might get online and watch YouTube videos, and <laughs> get on Zach voice fart yeah, and yeah. Uh, yeah. watch some new plays or some <laughs> out of bounds things. So that right. kind of thing. during the season, that's sounds kind of funny, but that's my way of relaxing or, yeah. or watch some college games on TV. But right, right. I guess sports, yeah. Um, you know, I love all different sports, so I think that's yeah. probably uh, my escape a little bit is just to delve into right. more basketball or other things that are going on. Yeah. So you grew up in um, – where your parents were from Richland County. Did you grow up in Richland County, Coach? I did, right outside of Mansfield. Okay. Uh, small – it's not even a town. It's a village okay. called Lucas. Okay. So when I was five years old, my parents bought a 75-acre farm. It yeah. wasn't a – you know – we weren't out uh, combining wheat or anything like <laughs> that, but we did have about 20 cows and my sister right. rode horses. And uh, that's okay. where I grew up in Lucas, Ohio. Yeah. Cause Richland County is uh, is a pretty blue collar, but also somewhat rural County. I think it only has about a hundred thousand people in its population, maybe 120. Um, my, my relatives live down in Bucyrus. Dr. Maynard is the dentist in Bucyrus, Pete Maynard. Yep. And uh, I've been down there quite a, quite a bit, especially for the Bratwurst Festival. If you've ever been to that, oh yeah, I just <laughs> repeat the question. So okay, um, I'm just Sorry. curious. Did that blue collar um, kind of, uh, I, I guess, uh, nature of Richland County kind of transcend its way into your bloodstream? I think so. I think you're, you know, for for at least um, a good portion of who you are, your upbringing mm-hmm. uh, kind of shapes you and. Yeah. Uh, Back in those days, you know, I graduated in 85 mm-hmm. and, um, you know, with the production that was going on, I, Mansfield is a very similar town to me anyways, mm-hmm. uh, to Barberton, a lot of industry yeah. that has since left. But back in those days, uh, my dad used to tell me he could walk out of Peabody Barnes, mm-hmm. quit that job and walk across the street to Ohio Brass yeah. and get a job the same day. There were just so many industry, General Motors, Tappan, Westinghouse right. there that I think that the kids I grew up with, their parents worked in those factories and okay. worked those jobs. And, um, you know, you, you kind of pick up on yeah. those things and yeah. uh, it, it, it kind of shapes you a little bit. So so I'm, I'm curious how this kind of spills over into your coaching because – Honestly, when I think of that county and I think of what you just mentioned, I think of some hardworking blue-collar folks. And then you come into Medina County, um, and sometimes, I'm not going to say just a Wadsworth, but any, anywhere in our greater suburbs of greater Akron, whether it's Wadsworth, Green, Hudson, Revere, all of those areas, um, we, we, we have kids who may not have parents who are blue-collar parents. Some are, but not all. 
or their lives might be a little bit cushier than maybe our lives were. Yeah. Um, they may not have been working, you know, maybe they weren't out there feeding the cows or taking care of cattle or anything like that, or or maybe their parents uh, have, have done a little better job of making their life a little bit softer. I'm just curious, has that ever been a challenge, knowing your blue-collar roots and then coming into some kids who kind of have it all sometimes? Not all, but, I mean, they have it all compared to some. Well, I think you bring up a great point now. In my situation, and, and Scott would know this as well, because I think he uh, has experienced the same thing with our kids in our girls' basketball program at Wadsworth. I think that well before my time, certainly, and before Scott's time, the foundation was laid and the standard was set. And mm-hmm. I think that our kids understand that mm-hmm. if you're not, and you guys know this as well as anyone, and the people that listen to your podcast know this if kids don't work hard at the sport of basketball, mm-hmm. they are not going to be very good players. Let's be right. honest. Right. And I think our program standard that was set in the nineties, mm-hmm. that if you don't work and yeah. you're not the hard worker, yeah. no matter what background you come from, because we certainly have kids that live in homes that you described yeah. that, are, that are very um, situated very well, let's yeah. say yeah. that, that still, for the most part, come to work every day and work hard and put in the work in the off off season. And that's right. You know, I've kind of lived better, a better lucky than good type of life. So, you know, and I think that's one of the things that I'm very, very thankful for is the type of kids we have here. And because I know that doesn't occur right in some of the other schools that that surround us. Coach, before we go into your journey and, and, and getting into some X's and O's, so if people are listening, we are going to dig into the run and jump defense and some other X's and O's and, of course, Coach's journey. But before we go there, I was trying to get ready for the show a little bit and do, do some research on you since I'm kind of stuck in my bubble at Hoban and I don't always get out to everywhere to watch games, although I have seen you coach a couple times live and, and it was impressive. But um, when I when I researched your name, you'll love this, by the way. Um uh, one of the probably the seventh thing down on the screen was a yappy post from 2004 or 2005. Okay, and as we know, yappy is the curse of the devil. I, I'll never forget when I just got character assassinated on yappy, like in I don't know 2001, and it, it hurt, man. It hurt the first time I looked at it, and then I, I hit delete and haven't looked at it since. Right. Uh, haven't looked at yappy or any of those anonymous, po- you know, whatever they're called. But long story short. Some guy was saying, oh, you know, they can't hire this guy. You know, he, he was 10 and uh, 12 uh, two years ago at Mansfield-Madison, uh, coach, or wherever you were up there. Now, now this next this, this last year, he did pretty well, though. You know, he went 16 and 4 or whatever. You know, why would we hire this guy or something like that? You know, it didn't quite say all that, but that's generally kind of what it said. Um, and then, of course, other people said, no, nah, I've heard he's a good coach and blah, 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 because some other people were in contention for the Wadsworth job. I just want to go back to that. I mean, it looks like in those last two years at your previous job, you really kind of had a turnaround in a two-year time. Is, is that true, or was that just something in print that looked like looked that way? Um, I was at Mansfield Madison for seven years, mm-hmm. and I believe, I know, uh, you know, you, you tend to remember uh, – you're, you're more positive records than the negative <laughs> records. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, we, my last year there, I think we were 16 and 6. Yeah. We had the district finals. Yep. We lost to Finley and Carly Roethlisberger yeah. um, at the University of Finley. Not saying that wasn't a fair setup. but um, <laughs> A little bit off. Before, yeah. We were at 500, and um, we had a stud at Madison. It was a volleyball school. They won the state okay. championship. 
okay. out in the late 90s in volleyball. Yeah. So it was a J.O. situation, which you guys know about that. Oh, yeah. So I was just trying to keep those kids yeah. around for basketball. We had a kid who ended up going to the University of Pacific, about a six-foot small forward off guard that was just fabulous. And she decided it was one of the kids I lost. Yeah. And she decided not to play the year before that I left. And right. uh, that hurt us because obviously yeah. you have a division one athlete. So, right. um, you know, you, you pretty much had it on, hit it on the head. Yappy is a, uh, an interesting place. Let's, let's say that. <laughs> I, I, you know, back in the day it was, I mean, people were all over that. I yeah. think that, um, kind of died down a little yeah, bit yeah we had some interesting information for oh yeah sure. absolutely so coach um where, where did you decide where, where did you um develop your style of coaching i mean how, how did you um you know let's i guess you know when you were a head coach or an assistant um you know when you were at mansfield madison what were you experimenting with as a coach well when i first started mansfield madison was my first head coaching job mm-hmm. and um if if i go back just a little bit i really never even thought about getting into the girls game. Okay. Um, my prior stop before Madison was Crestline, which as you mentioned is right yeah. next door to be Cyrus. Right. And I was there three years as an assistant coach to Jim Bauer, who phenomenal program, um, learned a great deal from him. But at, during that time, I felt I was ready to start looking for some head coaching opportunities. And, um, circling all the way back one of those opportunities i had was my alma mater lucas high school during that time at crestline wow and they had an opening yeah. and they offered me the job but one thing that they're I, I can't remember the name but the ad said we have no teaching positions available right now yeah and i thought long and hard about it because i wanted to be a head coach yeah and i thought i was ready um you know i know they they were going to be good they actually made the regionals a couple years in a row a different person, obviously. Yeah. So it was a good setup, but I, I decided not to do it because I wanted to be in the building. So I stayed yeah. at Preston another year. Okay. Um, again, no intentions of being a girls coach. I mean, not, there's nothing negative about it. I just, yeah. Was always in the men's game. Yeah. Uh, and so forth. So the way I got into the Madison job was uh, our girls coach, he Sager at Crestline was interested. Madison was open. So he said, Hey, why don't you call over to Madison? Cause mm-hmm. I knew, their yeah. AD and principal just from being a Mansfield guy. Right. And I kind of sold it to those guys as, Hey, I'm a little interested. Can you give me some information? While really I was just yeah. checking on the job for my buddy. Yeah. <laughs> and the more they talked and they sold it yeah. and they, you know, when they say, Hey, we've got three, six, three kids yeah. coming back next year. Wow. And all wow. these returners. Right. You know, I'm not very smart, but I started <laughs> to get a little intrigued about it. Right. And, um, you know, long story short, I followed yeah. through and, yeah. and uh, I got the job at Madison. So your question was, what was my style there? I was kind of a, I guess, a quote unquote, normal type of coach. I would try anything that I thought would work. Okay. I would do a three, two zone. I would do a two, three zone. I okay. would play men's defense. I would press. Yeah. yeah. Um, I would try whatever would yeah. work. Yeah. And um, it wasn't till probably year four or five that, um, we developed the style that we still kind of go with now, which is the run and jump and yeah. trying to push tempo and okay. uh, that type of thing. When you, when you started the run and jump coach, uh, which I, I, I love that. And I know the first coach in our area, um, 
if I understand the history of basketball well, that, that implemented that was Jack Reynolds. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I know Dean Smith would invite him down to their camp, and, and Dean Smith would pick his brain about it a little bit, um, believe it or not. And that, that's even in one of the books that I've read. And I actually got to meet Dean Smith at the Final Four in 2003. He sat a couple rows in front of me at the Final Four, and it was pretty cool. The I knew, I knew after I shook his hand the only way I was going to have a conversation that would last more than four seconds because he doesn't know me and doesn't care about who yeah. I am was if I mentioned Jack Grinnell's name. And uh, so I mentioned the, that I was friends with Jackie Jr. And all of a sudden we, we had about a three and a half to four minute conversation, which was something I'll always cherish. But I'm wondering, did you where did you pick up some of your nuances of the run and jump or did you just experiment with it and make it up? Well, first, I'll tell you the reason that we went to it. Okay. Um, we had a very good post player who was our leading scorer as a junior. Mm-hmm. Um, probably averaged 15 a game. Our offense ran through her. We were very half-court oriented. Mm-hmm. And her family moved, and so she transferred out. Wow. And so my assistant, um, I know we're going to probably get in and talk about assistant coaching later, but my assistant at the time, Randy Farst, who was a veteran guy, yeah. when I got the Madison job, I knew that he was the first call I'd make because he had coached, been a head coach for Lucas Boys. Yeah. Older guy. I, I thought I needed that type of mentor. Right. Mm-hmm. So very smart guy. Mm-hmm. And so – I'll remember, I remember like it was yesterday, we were sitting on my back porch and mm-hmm. we were, you know, trying to figure out what the heck we were going to do to score some points. <laughs> yeah. Is this right. You know, we had everything set up to run it through her again next year. Yeah. And he was, you know, he's like me and you and Scott, that just a junkie and yeah. always trying to learn. And he said, yeah. hey, I've got a couple thoughts on um, maybe we can make some offense out of our defense. Yeah. Right. And he was the one uh, that kind of, he didn't have to talk me into it, but he he, right. he brought it up to me and explained it to me. Yeah, and you know I was kind of like, "Hey, sounds yeah. great. It sounds exciting. It's fast paced. Right. What do we have to lose?" Type yeah. of thing. Yeah. And I guess that kind of um, for the next oh twenty plus years has kind of been wow. What we we've relied on a little yeah. bit. Co- Coach, um, one thing because I I tried that a lot and I still love it. We every summer we press. Um, of course, we're not going to have a summer this year, which stinks. But my philosophy in the summer is I want there to be a lot of possessions in a game because I want the kids to um, learn by mistake and learn by uh, having to make decisions in transition, basically. And so because I want and I want to play a lot of guys in the summer and I don't care if we lose or win in the summer necessarily, although I kind of still do because you want to win. Yeah. Um, but I've always every summer we just run and jump and just cause havoc because I want to see who can play. Right. I just want to see who can do stuff. But as I've, I get, I guess, got older on the boys' side, I've just noticed that it's harder and harder to stop the ball because there are better and better ball handlers and guards in the game. Does that does that transition over to the girls' side? I know in, in and I've coached girls basketball. I coached 16 years of AAU basketball with my daughters on the girls' side. I don't want to split hairs here, but I always thought it was a little bit easier to run and jump on the girl's side because there weren't quite as many good ball handlers on the girl's side. Is this true coach or am I just making this stuff up? No, you are exactly right. And that's a big reason why we do it. Um, You know, we always tell our kids, you know, you mentioned a youth. We will say to ask the girls, how many kids on the AU teams you play against are good ball handlers per team? And most of them will say one. And I'll say, you ever see a team with 
Two? Eh, maybe some. <laughs> yeah. What about three? Mm. Yeah. Have you ever seen a team that can trot five good ball handlers out there? Exactly. No. Yeah. Never so it certainly um, lends itself to our game. Yeah. Um, you know, every now and again, especially when you're playing the upper echelon teams or get down the tourney trail, you're going to find that team or two yeah. that have better ball handlers. And then you have to make some adjustments. Yeah. But um, for the most part, but, and I think obviously, and you guys know this, the girls game is getting better and better. Right. Um, so there may become a day where maybe it's not as successful. And I think it's teams, obviously we've been here 16 years. So teams yeah. have game plan for that and right. um, in different ways, but I think that it's not splitting hairs. Definitely. Yeah. I think, it, you know, I, I coached my son's AAU team uh, mm-hmm. for years, just like you, you yeah. guys do. Yeah. Or PK on the on your girl's or daughter's side and Scott on his son's side. And it is tougher. It is yeah. tougher. We still ran it just yeah. because I think it's fun and it's, you know, summer right. ball. And, right. Um, all the uh, items that you mentioned, but it's, it is yeah. tougher because guys, they can trot out three, four, five kids that yeah. can actually handle it and, yeah. and hurt you and exploit it a little bit. Andy, related to this conversation that we're having about the run and jump, you've been a girls coach for a real long time. And I'm sure even though the game has evolved, in some ways it kind of comes back. I mean, I think maybe the heyday of girls basketball in Ohio was in the late 90s. Um, And then maybe there was a resurgence about the time that you guys won the state title. I think there's an ebb and flow to it. But with all that said, are there three or four keys that you think make a good girls basketball player or a group of kids make a good team? Let me give you one example and then I'll let you try, try to go with this. Cause you're the expert on this, but like I always wanted my girls to be able to play at full speed and pass and catch the ball. Because I think so few teams can play at full speed and pass and catch the ball. Would you agree with that? And do you think there are some other keys? Well, I 100% agree with it. And, and the phrase we use to our kids is until you're comfortable being uncomfortable, mm-hmm. you're going to be a very average player. Yeah. And, you know, going back to that work ethic and so forth. But I think you can put in the time, but you still have to be in those yeah. situations, whether it be AAU or. Mm-hmm whatever summer league with your team, but until your skill work combines with your ability to not get rattled under pressure, which passing, catching, shooting, dribbling under pressure or being uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. you're going to struggle. So that's, I'm with you a hundred, 110%. I think that when our kids get comfortable being uncomfortable, then I know that we have a good player on our hands. Yeah. Hey, Coach, um, we're going to go in a lot of different directions, uh, and I apologize to our listeners, but this is just uh, this is how my brain works. But when you said that, it made me think about how you develop those players. And I, and I wonder, um, one, one curiosity I have is how people get it done in the summer. And, and I, was, I was talking to a state championship team one time, and I was shocked that they only went Tuesday and Thursdays in the summer, and then they went to a shootout for four weekends in a row. But they only went Tuesdays and Thursdays as a team, okay? And I, I always thought that we had to do more. Like we, we tried to go almost every day in the summer, ex- at least, it, it, you know, if it's an open gym or whatever it is. Sure. Um, what, and I guess the guy's point that I was picking his brain was that 
my guys have to work out on their own outside of that Tuesday and Thursday. And that, 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 that you know, they, they need to be doing stuff on their own, but team stuff is just Tuesday and Thursday. So that was a long way to get to my question is, how do you develop these players in the offseason? Are, are you guys going crazy hard on four-man workouts every day, or what, what's your philosophy on that? Well, obviously with the, the four-man workout um, being allowed, it's changed things over the years. But um, along with our four main workouts, we're, we're probably looking at typically we do a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, okay. uh, be in the gym and co combine that with weight room. Okay. Um, but I don't think that we are necessarily overexerting those kids by time that they have to quote unquote have to be there. Yeah. Um, we do count on those kids to do work on their own. Okay. Um, one thing I've, you know, you, you learn from everybody, all your fellow coaches. And one thing I, I kind of, uh, you steal a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you know, you look at a, a good friend of mine and obviously Scott and, uh, Dave Slayball at Highland, you, you pick yeah. his brain as much as you can. And their oh, yeah. gym rock club, we've kind of mm -hmm. done a version of that where yeah. we try to give those kids some guidance on mm -hmm. their own mm -hmm. and then, um, give them some goals to hit and then try to reward them if they hit those goals. So right. I think it's a combination of both. I, I yeah. don't, you know, one thing that I, I try, that I think we, we don't do is, um, you know, put such a premium on those kids times that they feel like they're, that it's overkill because I right. think, I think this part of it's changing too. I think there's so many other options for these kids now right? that if you're only gearing things to the, super involved yeah. basketball kid yeah you're gonna lose a lot of those fringe kids who are right. gonna yeah. be your seventh eighth ninth and tenth person right and that'll kill you yeah in yeah. my opinion how do you how do you reconcile um that seventh eighth ninth tenth eleventh person um who's working their butt off and they come to everything and and you know how it is we we have these people <laughs> and sometimes yeah. it's number 13 14 and 15 that comes to everything and, and sometimes one, two, three, or four, you know, comes the most, but they miss a few. But but that gosh darn it, that number fifteen kid never misses. How how do you reconcile it when during the season number fifteen's not necessarily getting all the personal accolades they want out of it, and now you've got some parent issues? What what has been your style to deflect some of that over your time at Madison and at Wadsworth? Well, off season is a whole different yeah. animal yeah. in terms of um, once we get into the season, so to speak. I yeah. mean obviously you're, you're using some of that to yeah. um, judge, but once we get the official practice, yeah. tell our kids that playing time, we tell our parents this too. This is yeah. one of the first things we say in our parent meeting. We say playing time will be determined not by me, yeah. not by the coaches. It'll right. be determined by your daughter or son yeah. in practice. Yeah. So when the player comes home and is unhappy about playing time, and then of course the parent, yeah, unhappy about playing time. obviously that's the major issue we have with unhappy parents yeah you know the first thing and, and i feel like this is a whole separate topic but i've been pretty fortunate in terms of not having a ton of these issues okay but i always you know obviously you guys know this the first thing a parent's going to say is what can my kid do to play more yep yep and i'll say well have you asked your daughter right and because she knows the answer to that, <laughs> you know, I think we're, we're one thing that we try to do. And I think I can improve on every year. Cause I always, you know, you have your evaluations and you have your self reflections. And yeah. one of the things that I'm always looking at is what can I improve upon? And communication is usually near the top of that list. Right. 
Right. And I think I'm a pretty good communicator, but I want to yeah. be better because it's amazing. I don't know if you guys find this. It's amazing. You say something and you think in your mind, Hey, I was just <laughs> on that right. Right. individually or as a group. Yeah. And boy, then they come back and go, Oh yeah. Coach, you didn't say that, or that's not what they heard. Right. So, you know, all the, the things that you hear being transparent, being yeah. up front, but yeah. Um, you know, really, and, and it does help us with our style. We can play a lot more kids. Yeah. We can play 10 kids. So that, that's a lot of varsity kids. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And typically if you get past nine or 10, yeah, I think kids are smart enough to realize that they may or may not be a varsity player. Right. So, right. but I guess to, to answer your question, we try to sell the fact to the parents yeah. and the kids that yeah. they're the ones that determine the playing time. And right. one thing that I think is really funny is, when parents or whomever mm-hmm. accuses a coach of playing favorites or why isn't this kid getting to play, I always respond. And I, I say this to other kids in the school who will right. say, well, coach, let's say coach Todd on the football team. Yeah. This is an example. He should be playing so-and-so at right. quarterback. <laughs> and I say to those kids and I'll say to our kids too, yeah, what do you think the coach's main goal to start the game is? And of course they say to win. (laughs) And I'll say to them, do you really think that their coach Booth or coach Todd or coach Callahan or coach Griff isn't playing who he thinks gives them the best chance to win? You think that they are so dumb that they're going to play something that they like better over someone that's going to help them win. I don't know. Yeah. Co- Coach, I was listening to Robin Frey like two nights ago on the OHSBCA um, one hour long uh, podcast thing she did or whatever it was called, Zoom. Um, and she said something that made me, it gave me pause. And she said that any gaps in communication will be filled with negativity um, during the okay. season. During the season, Okay. And then I reflected on that because I've had both things happen. Um, Scott knows that uh, I, I'm a mix of an introvert and an extrovert. And there are times during the season where I, where I will bunker down in my, in my classroom and really not talk. I don't go to the teacher's lounge. I don't do anything. I, I just work and go coach. Um, and I don't always talk to the players about their position on the team every day. I just okay. kind of eventually assume that they're going to get it. Okay. So I've, I've done that for a while. Then on the flip side, <laughs> Scott will probably attest to this. On the flip side, I sometimes talk too much and give kids a lot of hope. <laughs> Okay. And, and I, and I, cause I don't want the kid to give up on himself. So I might say, Hey, Billy, you know, if, if you keep working, you know, and your shot gets a little better, you know, I, I think there's an opportunity. So I, and I, I feel like there I'm over communicating and that's filled with negativity. Cause then, then it doesn't come to fruition. Um, you know what I mean? So I heard her say communication gaps will, will turn negative. And then I'm thinking, but so will over communication, you know, uh, what, what's, any thoughts on that? Any reflection on that? I think it's a fine line. Yeah. Uh, I'll give you a situation where we've had a years ago, we had a kid who unfortunately had been injured and was working the way back. And of course, as a parent, you want your son or daughter to um, do the things they love to do, be successful. Yeah. So yeah. the parent gets a hold of me and wants me to discuss, um, I guess, more in depth, hey, encourage this athlete. Sure. And what the parent doesn't know is, you know, we have done that, been doing that all the way through. Oh yeah. 
Well, but then it gets you to think, well, if you encourage this person right. so hard that they have false hopes, right. then it comes down to the season and playing time. And yeah. this particular person or in whatever situation right. doesn't get those playing time rewards that they felt that you had kind of encouraged yep. them to stay with it. Yeah. Then you're the bad guy. Yeah. So it's yeah. a fine line. And I guess I try, <laughs> I try not to over encourage because I think right. that can be detrimental. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. This is kind of my small town Lucas upbringing. I just kind of play it by ear and, right. and, and try to feel my way through. And, yeah. you know, if you're wrong, you're wrong and you, you, you right. live with the consequences. Andy, I think one of the geniuses of your coaching is you've created an identity with your program. And, and, you know, for years, a lot of that is the run and jump that we were talking about before. But the other thing I'm so fascinated with you and how you coach during a game is you're substituting. <laughs> and and I, I've watched so many of your games, and I kind of get a feel for how you're substituting. But can you talk to us about like how much of that are you doing? How much do you give that to? And I want to do a, a, a lot of conversation about your assistant coaches, because I think you have the best assistants in Ohio. I agree. And, and, and I was blessed to coach with those guys at, at one time as well, but how much responsibility do you have? Do they have? And then what's the ideal number of kids to play? Well, I think the perfect number is eight, and I'll right. tell you why. You have five perimeter that can sub for three spots and then three posts that you can just rotate through the two spots. That's the perfect number. Um, at Wadsworth, we've been blessed with a lot of great players, so there's been years where we'll play nine or ten. But I'm very upfront, going back to one of the questions that TK asked, I'm very upfront especially in the preseason before we start in the scrimmage schedule. If you want to play varsity basketball, you better be in the top 10 because I can't play more than 10. That's hard for me to do. And 10 is maybe too many. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but the perfect number for me is eight. Yeah. Um, but in terms of subbing, and this is probably, you know, again, my Lucas roots, I'm not the smartest guy, but I do that all by myself. And, I really, there's, there is kind of a thought process to it because I know we want to keep our kids fresh. And one of the things that we harp in our system is if you can go and play 110% for two to three minutes, you're coming out. And it's not because you did anything wrong. It's because you are done playing as hard as you can mm -hmm. for those two to three minutes. Mm -hmm. So I typically would start at the five, you know, sometimes the six, sometimes five thirty, sometimes five of the first quarter mark. I'm subbing two to three kids in right now. And it may or may not be the same as the game before. Um, you know, a lot of things will factor into that, but I'm typically going to sub in two to three kids within the first three minutes of the game. Okay. And then that'll continue out over the years is, I like to, let's say you have a Jody Johnson who is your stud player, whomever yeah. that may be. Yeah. I like to get them out early because I'm going to get them back in quicker. Yeah. If I leave my stud out there in the stint, that's maybe a little longer Yeah. then I've kind of winded them and they're not as effective in that last minute or two of that um, period of time. Okay. But if I get her back, 
in out and then back in quicker. Um, yeah, I feel that's worked for us. And kind of the funny thing about that, speaking about assistance, and and obviously we're going to get into those guys. There's been shootouts where I haven't been at a game or had to leave the gym for whatever reasons, or even summer league when my daughter or Coach Postack's wife Megan will coach for us when we're not using our days. But but I'll use my daughter Peyton as an example. She she was coaching our summer league for many many years and she would turn around to look at me and I would be like, you're not, you're not subbing quick enough. You know what I mean? <laughs> leaving the kids in there too long. Yeah. And I, one of my main things is if, if they're looking tired, I've left them in too long. Right. So I sub probably, you know, being a guy that watches a lot of basketball, I probably people, when they see us play, probably think, man, they sub a lot and they sub yeah. often, but yeah, I think that keeps the kids freshest. Right. This is so interesting to me, Andy, because, I mean, I know you were a really good player in high school. I know you were a very good player at Malone. Um, did you experience this when you were a player, meaning I'm in the zone and the coach has taken me out of the game? Did you ever feel that way? And have and I know you've coached, you know, your daughter, the Banks girl, Jody Johnson, I mean, Pavlik Wood. It's got these kids who are elite high school level players. Do you leave them in longer? Do you want to make sure they're in at certain moments of a quarter or in a game? Or is it just, you know, intuition? Well, two points on that. Number one, our best players seem to find their way back into the game. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, and at crunch time, we're usually, well, not usually, 99% of the time, the kids that are playing well are going to be in the game in that situation. Okay. Yeah. And we can manage it from there, yeah. whether it be timeouts, end of quarters, et cetera. So we're, I'm cognizant of that fact. I'm, although it may seem like it, if you watch us, I'm not just shuffling those kids in, in and out uh, willy nilly or random. Um, the other point is there's been, Oh man, I, I can't even count the times where, I'll have three kids at the scores table to sub and one of our kids that I know I, I'll say, you know, get TK out to a kid and TK hits a three, which he's heard many times. <laughs> okay. okay. Well, but has he heard this TK just hit a three. That's the only thing I could do. Yeah. <laughs> so TK just hits a three and I'll look down at the scores table and right. I'll say, yeah. Hey, Pav, get somebody else. Cause yeah. I'm not going to take that out when they just hit a shot. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and Andy, one more thing about this subbing thing, because it's so fascinating to me. You talked about the ideal situation, ideally. You forget about foul trouble or injuries. You're playing eight people. So right. you have three for the two post positions. You have five for the three perimeter positions. Right. Um, I know you run great stuff. Okay, and I mean that. You run great stuff. I always struggle with kids, uh, you know, if I'm subbing a lot, them being able to know then the things we're running and be able to execute at game speed, mm -hmm. do, do your kids have to learn multiple positions? In other words, if you're a one, are you really a one, two, three? Yeah, that's a great question. Our post players need to know the four and five. I mean, we're not, we're, we have a number system, one through five. Yeah, yeah. Our post players ideally would know both especially okay. obviously if we're in a three post rotation, they're going to need to know both. Right. right. 
um r1 2 and 3 it's funny and i guess kind of a quirky thing it during my time at Wadsworth, we've had kids who would start the game at the four. I'd like to play a, a smaller, like a wing type player at the four. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In our system, if I put out two six foot kids that are slow at my post, that would not fit our system. Yeah. Right. And at Wadsworth, we really have not been blessed during my time to have right. numerous big quote big kids. Yeah. So it's kind of worked with the personnel. Yeah. But there's been numerous years I could. There's at least four kids, starting with Cassie Schrock in 06, 07, mm-hmm. who started off the game at our four spot and were our backup point guard. Right. Oh, yeah. Uh, Jody Johnson played that role. My daughter played that role. Lindsey Tenyak played my, that role. Right. Last year, Taylor Leatherman played that role. Right. Yeah. yeah. So to answer your question, Scott, our kids ideally would know the one through three. Oh, let, me, let me take that back. One is kind of a separate entity. They kind of have their own job. In our system, the two and three are interchangeable, and the four and five are interchangeable. Okay. Some kids need to know both post and perimeter player yeah. play. So I think, again, one of the things that I've been very blessed with, Wadsworth, you have very, very intelligent kids. Right. Right. So it's not a hard sell for the most part to get those kids to learn. Yeah. And then it's just repetition. Yeah. Repetition. Yeah. Coach, um, I had the same question Scott just had, to be honest with you, because I, I hate to take uh, my point guard out and and put somebody else in who may not know the set as well. Or if I'm running a, a particular set to get a specific kid a three, let's say, with some options involved in it, like some slips and some other things, I hate to not have him out there. Um, right. So, so I, I'm curious, sometimes throughout a game, a three has to play a four and a four has to play a three. So with all that being said, which you already answered this question, how many new sets are you putting in per game? Because um, I like to change during the season, and I, like you said, I watch some of those YouTube things too, and it's my, it's kind of like my therapy at night, and I'll, I'll get a great idea from watching Iowa play on ESPN, and then the next day I want to run it. Right. But then if I put it in and I want to run it, if I haven't done a ton of repetitions with everybody getting multiple spots, they may not run it well. Does that does that ever become a problem for you? It does, and, and I am a set guy like we don't run just basic motion okay. i'm a set guy okay. because for whatever reason i want to dictate who is the uh, yeah. first option second option yeah. third option. yeah yep and i guess with our substitution patterns and we play 10 kids yeah uh it's not equal opportunity offense at that point they all better play defense right but as you guys know you're not going to have yeah. 10 kids that are equally talented on the offensive side of the ball right so I guess that kind of blends in with the reason that I want to be in control of those calling those different sets and having right. being a set type coach Yeah, because I can look at the five that are on the floor mm-hmm. and maybe we can't run 20% of our sets because of the personnel. Right. But I know there's a few sets in there that, that whatever the personnel's out there, yeah. I've got a kid or two that I can run my other sets with. Okay. So, okay. I guess yeah. not really thinking it through to start this whole system in terms of our run and jump and our substitutions. Right. And our playing t- 10 kids, me wanting to run sets and kind of, I don't know, I'm kind of a puppet master. Like I, yeah. I want to give some freedom, but then again, I don't, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. So I guess it kind of blends pretty well. Yeah. Andy, from an installation standpoint, like right now in your coaching career, are you, 
kind of like a, a teacher with scope and sequence, do you kind of like maybe the first, let's say through November, have an idea um, during the scrimmage schedule? All right, I want to have five sets in that I feel real comfortable about. And then prior to Christmas, then maybe add one or two more and then kind of reevaluate going into the new year. How do you kind of, from an installation standpoint, go about it? That's a good question. It, and I think probably the best answer I can give you depends on the team that you have. This okay. past year, we were very young. Right. We had a ton of sophomores that had played JV the year before. So I'm the type of guy that I don't necessarily want our JVs running exactly, especially offensively, what we do. Because right. I know that, and you guys probably do the same thing. I'm watching that JV game of our opponent, and I'm telling our kids, hey, they just ran chin. Yeah. Did you guys see it? Yeah, exactly. Well, so I don't want to right. give a coach that opportunity to, to copycat yeah. or to doubt our stuff. Right. So when you have a young group like we did last year, I've got to really slow down yeah. the urge to put in a ton of stuff because then you're going to be, as you guys know, right. not very good at any of it. Right, right. So I don't know that I have an exact number, but I guess it's more of – how quickly these kids can learn and get yeah. the sets down. Yeah. And the, let, let's say we're a veteran team. Yeah. They're going to have a lot of the stuff already down pat. Right. Right. They can kind of help the younger kids with it. And then we can zoom a little bit faster. And yeah. Um, Judge Carnes always, he's one of our assistants we'll talk about. He's, he's the guy that makes my play card. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> he's always saying, we're running out of room. What can we yeah. cut? Yeah. Because the card doesn't yeah. fit in my pocket. <laughs> And um, so I guess it's just a matter of how quickly they yeah. can handle yeah. the information. Coach, I'm the same way. I, I started um, probably three or four years ago um, because I would often have a sheet of paper in my pocket that over the course of the game would fall apart. Um, mm -hmm. And I, would, I always print that out before a game. So I started using a binder. Um, and actually, I'll tell you, I picked it up from a guy who I really respect um, of course, whose name's going to escape me now, but hopefully, uh, I think it's Schmelzer, Coach Schmelzer from Normandy, Parma, Normandy. He then took the NDCL job, but his father was a famous baseball coach at Ed's and then at St. Edwards University in Austin, Texas, and I've always respected him. I hope I got his name right. Um, uh, it might be Schmatzer if it's not, but uh, he used to use a binder. When I, I was scouting Padua one time, and, and the guy's got a binder, and he's writing stuff in it as the game's going. And that's never been my style, but I thought, that's pretty cool. You know, so I asked him, you know, what are you writing down there? And he said, I'm, write, I'm writing some plus and minus things for each kid, and I'm writing some substitution patterns, and I'm writing some notes for halftime. I said, wow, that's pretty cool. I never did that part of it, but I keep my play sheet there on one side, and I keep specials on the left side, okay? So I have a, uh, even though Scott would make fun of me because I'm kind of like a mad, I'm kind of like a mad scientist, believe it or not, I have things very organized in my binder. So if there's a baseline out of bounds against zone, I've got my seven top ones there, okay? Okay. But here's my problem. My assistant wanted to start laminating it this year during the year. And so he kept, like you said, wanting to change it and update it. Pretty soon we were running out of room. And then he's putting stuff on there that we don't use anymore. And I'm like, guys, I, I can't do this. I just have to go with my – just just let me let me stay with my world, and I'll do it the way I want to do it. But you brought up something that was really funny, Coach. Um, we, we, we ran a little 1-3-1 this year for some reason. We're not a 1-3-1 team. 
but I thought we could sneak up on some teams with a big, long guy up top, get a couple yeah. turnovers, and get out of it, okay? My JV coach started using it, and I was pissed for a couple games because what? all of a sudden the opponent kind of knows, oh, yeah, that, and, and we have a couple slides out of it that are that are not natural, okay? We, we, we do a couple things like where we're Xing out of it. We're not always trapping everywhere. And, and he's showing this stuff, and I'm thinking, I don't really want that, you know? I don't want these guys to see this because this is my surprise thing where I could turn a whole game around if I get two or three turnovers in it. Of course, in the district semi, a team got a layup because my middleman doesn't rotate, so that's so much for the one-three-one. Okay. Um, but you know what I mean? I, I kind of agree with you on that. Uh, is that something that you always believed in? Yeah, yeah. And um, to your point, Coach Schmelzer, who is our JV coach, Mike Schmelzer, senior, he – I don't know how you guys break your practices down, but – we practice with our JV. So obviously we're spending X amount of the time varsity on one end, JV on the other, putting in your things. Well, coach Smeltzer is the mad scientist is, you know, you, you use that term. <laughs> he will laugh when we watch the JV game because yeah. he'll have another set in and we'll go, that's a Smeltzer special, you know, but every now and again, again, he'll call something that I don't know that he put in. That's our stuff, <laughs> especially out of bounds. And yeah. I'll be like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Please don't run that. You right. know, so right. I, I'm with you there. Hey Andy, you just mentioned uh, Mike Schmelzer senior. I, I, I really want to go down this uh, pathway because I think it's one of the most unique things about your program. And that's the relationship that you've had for the last 16 years with Mark Postak, Mike Schmelzer senior and Tom Carnes your assistant coaches. And I know other people have helped you that have been invaluable as well. But when, when I was the head girls coach at Wadsworth a long time ago, I was blessed to coach with these three guys too. And, and um, I just, I want you to talk maybe a little bit about the importance of assistant coaches and then how you divide up roles and responsibilities and use these guys, because I, I they, they certainly don't get enough credit. Well, one thing that is a guarantee in our season during the end of the year banquet is I'm going to say the following thing to our parents and players or whoever is at our banquet. We have the best coaching staff in Ohio, and it's not because of yours truly. It's mm -hmm. because of Mike Schmelzer, Tom Carnes, and Mark Postak. And those guys, I think, started working together in the 96-97 season, I think is when Correct. Coach Collins came over. And I believe that might also have been um, coach Schmelzer's first year as JV coach. Maybe he was there a year before, but coach Postak has been with the program since I think 92. Um, yeah, so 91, 92. I yeah. was the varsity girls assistant and Mark was the JV coach, our first year of teaching. Right. So it's 2020 fellas. And it doesn't right. seem like it to me. I don't know how you guys correlate time in your mind, but <laughs> that's a long time ago. It doesn't seem like it to me, right. but that's a long time ago. Yeah. And for those three guys to get together in 96, 97, and they're still at it during the 2020 season, I don't know if you could find that in the state of Ohio on boys or girls staffs, or maybe even the country. I right. don't know, but right. I would say that continuity is probably few and far between. Yeah. Um, you know, so w when I got hired here, obviously I'm, I don't have any assistance, you know, it's kind of a fresh slate. And, yeah. and I said to Steve Moore, who's our principal now and was the AD back then, I said, um, what do you think about the guys that were on staff? And he right. said, uh, you probably want to talk to them. 
So that's probably <laughs> the best advice Steve Moore ever gave me. Right. Um, so, you know, I got in touch with every one of them and right. they were certainly willing to, to, uh, to come back. And, and I know they started under Todd Osborne and then worked through coach Callahan and, and they've still been on staff through me, but you talk about, and Scott, you probably can speak to this too, but you talk about a safety net coming in new to a place and yeah. you have three guys, not just three guys that had been on the staff before knew the kids, but three veteran guys that had all here's something that people I don't know if they know all three of these guys have been head coaches coach Schmelzer is still our varsity softball head coach right um coach Carnes was the varsity coach at Ravenna and coach Postak was the girls soccer coach so and you guys know how important I don't care what sport it is being a head coach is because there's so much so many things that the general Tom, Dick, and Harry doesn't understand that goes on being the head coach and having three resources like that on your staff is just invaluable. Yeah. Um, You know, those three obviously are are three of my best friends, you know, Uh, not only are they great coaches, not only do they have experience, not only were they with the program, they're great people. That's the biggest thing about them. They're great people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you talk about a lifelong bond um, that you form with these guys. Right. And I, I listened to a little bit of one of the podcasts I che- was able to check out was uh, Tate Moore, yeah. um, a Wadsworth graduate, talking about his assistance a little bit. And um, one of the things that I don't know that he necessarily pointed out, but I, it almost seemed like, and I think this is true a lot of places, you don't get assistants that have a lot of experience, number right. one, right. let alone having head coaching experience of, at some point. Right. level of some sport yeah so when you when these guys say something you yeah. know they know what the heck they're talking about and that right. has been such a blessing not only to me but for yeah. the with kids hopefully right smokes. right talk about respect yeah um, that these kids have for them and um you know i can get very emotional and long-winded talking about these guys because they're that close to me and that important um, Andy, to our program, yeah. Andy. Um, I'm curious. Like, I I think every head coach, there's always a small, tiny part of you that's looking over your shoulder, um, a little bit. I think it's just natural. Um, and you come into a new environment, and you got three guys who are kind of Wadsworth lifers. I mean, you know, how long did it take to trust them? I mean. Don't, you know what I mean? How did you guys develop trust? Because if I'm going into a small community right now, uh, wherever, let's just say Mogador or something or something farther away, and there's three guys, you know, Wyndham or wherever, and I'm taking over for Marty Hill or somebody, and there's three guys on staff that I retain, you know, do I fear that, hey, you know, these guys are Wyndham guys, they're not TK Griffith guys. How, you know, how did you develop that trust? Well, that's that's a great point. And the, the, one of the funny things, I was assistant coach early in my career at Mansfield St. Peter's Boys. And at that time in the early nineties, they were a dominant small school program in the state. Yeah. I was there two years and both years we made the regional finals. And I'm thinking, man, this, this is my first experience in high school coaching. Wow. And I thought, man, this is easy. <laughs> you know, I'm, gonna, I'm one step away from state. Yeah. As an assistant. My first couple of years, I thought, you know, obviously that didn't work out down the road, but it wasn't real life. But right. I was the most popular guy, you know, you'd go down to the, um, um, uh, 
little watering hole after the games and yeah. all the fans and the parents there at St. Pete's, they'd be telling you what a great job you're doing. And yeah. man, you should be coaching this team and <laughs> all this. So yeah. I guess I got exposed to that pretty early. Right. But, but to your point, um, number one, Mark Postak, who, who has been there obviously since the early nineties, I really believe if he had wanted that job, he could have had that job. Yeah. Um, for whatever reason at that point, I, I think he was just still wanted to continue as being the lead assistant. Yeah. Um, in terms of coach Schmelzer, I think that, uh, you know, I, I think that it was very early on, very easy for me to, there were no, there were no fears yeah. there anyway, but it was very easy to tell early on how genuine these guys were, right. Right. that their motives were yep. specifically there to help me and yeah. to help the kids. Yeah. Um, so I guess looking back, I never yeah. felt, and again, having gone through that and knowing what you're talking about, I right. never felt any sense of that yeah. whatsoever, which yeah. speaks to the kind of guys those guys are to make me right. feel that comfortable. Yeah, that's amazing. That's that's a special part of your journey that I'm sure you'll always cherish because I know my my favorite memories in coaching have been my relationships with my, with my fellow coaches. Um, you know, I, I like to say fellow coaches and not assistants sometimes because, yeah. you know, they're doing as much as we are. Tom, Tom Goodall in my life, uh, not only was he my coach when I was in seventh grade, but he also assisted me for 17 or 18 years. And he, he has since passed away to esophageal cancer at a very young age. It's been a while now. It's been 12 years ago, but he, he was everything to me. Um, and we shared a lot of great memories together. So that's so much of the journey. Um, I want to dig into that more, but, but Andy, I want to go back to the JV varsity thing. Cause I, there was one more th- point on that. I wanted to ask you w- one of the things that I've always feared about my Hoban program is we're, we're not a community program. So we're not Wadsworth. We, we can't do anything at sixth, seventh and eighth grade. That's, that's going to then spill over into our, our, uh, style of play. Okay. I can't develop a sixth, seventh and eighth grade program. And then on the ninth grade program, I can't be in the gym with that guy because I need them to be separate. So even our ninth grade program doesn't always do exactly what we do. And then if, if, if my JV program, like you just said, if I let them do their own thing, sort of kind of, other than the fact that they practice with us. And this is where my question goes to you. Do you fear a little bit sometimes that then you know, they're not ready for varsity ball because they're running a different style. You know, like, like, how do you reconcile that part of it? If they're just kind of doing, I don't want to say their own thing, but they're doing different stuff. Does that ever come into play? And, and tell me about that a little bit. Well, what we try to do down and some years it's been into the feeder system, the fourth, fifth and sixth grade. We'll have a coach. I don't, this is just me. I try not to put my fingers too heavily into that youth program because the way I look at it is once they get in the seventh grade, yeah, my fingers are all over that. Yep. So I do have some involvement, you know, yep. they have questions or we've done clinics, et cetera, okay. which I think we all do that. Yeah. But starting in seventh grade, for sure, we are, I want them to know our principles of our defense. Okay. I want them to understand right. the principles of the run and jump. So okay. depending on the group, um, and again, I've been very lucky. Our eighth grade coach has been Greg Pickert, who is our, yep head varsity baseball coach. He's yeah. been there for 16 years. Right, right. How many eighth grade coaches can this guy say had the same one for 16 years? <laughs> um, and my seventh grade coach is Lindsay Tenyak, who was a yeah. great player at Ashland University, won right. a national championship and played for me yeah. at Wadsworth. So those guys know kind of in the seventh grade, we'll have a little modified run and jump. Maybe we won't jump. Maybe we're just going to get up on people and, yeah. and try to work them a little bit on ball pressure. Right. But, um, you know, defense is probably the one area that I would say that we 
strive to have that same Got teaching, it. those same concepts. Okay. I guess the same verbiage. Yeah. Um, offensively, we're going to teach them what we want them to run. Okay. Uh, obviously, they're working on fundamentals and so forth at that level. But okay. the defensive end, we do try to implement that down through yeah. our grade. Yeah. Coach, um, we, you talked about being the puppet master uh, and, and, and calling sets. And one thing that I've always loved about coaching is I, I, I love to, to call something and, and it works and, and it's it's timely. And I just feel like a little bit of a head coach as an offensive coordinator like he would be in football. There, like there's, there's times where you call something because you know it's what you need. However, as I listen to these podcasts and as I try to develop personally as a coach, I really kind of come to admire people who, like the mentor coach, um, Coach K up at Mentor and other programs where they kind of allow their guys to play and and make mistakes. And, and for instance, one of the guys I really, really respect is Jim Crutchfield at West Liberty. And he's yeah. now at, at uh, Southeastern Nova, whatever it's called, down in Florida. And he just lets his guys play and make decisions. Is there ever a point where I'm, I'm going to try to change a little bit in that is where I'm going with this. But I, I, I hate to lose the puppet master piece because I think, I think at times I can be good at it. And it's a, it's a gut instinct and it's a feel. Um, is there ever a time if you had a certain group of kids where you would change or do you think this is just who you are with the puppet master part? Well, it, it depends on the group and I'll give you an example. In in 2016, when when we were fortunate enough to get down to Columbus and and win a couple of games, we had some very, very high IQ players. Even our younger kids were very high high IQ players. And we ran what the thing that I grew up in high school was we only ran five out. Yeah. Uh, it was when Huggins was back at Walsh. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, curl cuts. Yeah. You know, slips. Yeah. And I love that. I mean, yeah. I was a 6'5 post player, and that's we didn't post me up. We yeah. ran that. Yeah. And that obviously gives you some freedom. Yeah. So we've run that over – because I'm comfortable teaching it. Yeah. Um, we've run that over the years. It just depends on the kids. Okay. Uh, now, last year, we didn't – our proposed starting center mm-hmm. – um, Steph Andrews went down in the preseason with a knee injury and she wasn't that big to start with. Right. I'll, I'll list her at five ten, but she's probably yeah. five nine right. stretching. Yeah. But we didn't have that big kid in the middle that we could run right sets or through. Yeah. And we were young that I didn't feel comfortable running that five out because if, if you yeah. do it right, it's a thing of beauty. But yeah. if you can mess you better have five people on the same page yeah. or it's gonna be atrocious. Oh, yeah. yeah. So with so many sophomores and, and no true post presence i really for the first time ever um we did a lot of princeton stuff okay and that's kind of where i'm still at because we're really with the same clientele and yeah individuals yeah Uh, and you talk about studying and trying to improve every day i've really been getting into the princeton okay um, i'm trying to find everything i can so in terms of changing style i'm gonna i change styles to the point where I think it's going to help us win. I'm not above trying anything and everything. Yeah. Um, do yeah. I like running sets? Yeah, that's probably my preferred method. But yeah. I certainly will run okay. some uh, some motion type concepts if we if we have yeah. the personnel and that's going to help us win games. Okay. Andy, um, I've been fortunate to watch your team practice off and on over the last 16 years, and I've probably stolen more from you and how I want to organize practice and drills I want to use than any other coach. Can you talk about just briefly like two or three drills that you love that kind of dynamically 
teach the game. You know, it teaches you how to rebound. It teaches you how to play offense and defense and, and transition at both ends. And if you could only use two or three drills, these are probably the ones you would use. Great question. I, For our system, these three drills probably do what you just mentioned, teach how to play, which the way we like to play, it's you need to learn how to play basketball, as I mentioned before, be comfortable being uncomfortable. Uh-huh but we like to do a lot of four on four full court stuff. Right. And we will probably do these three drills every practice because it's basically teaching how we want to play, which is everyone's involved. We're playing full court. We're making other teams play at our pace of play. And what we like to do is we, we call the first one four on four, 13 S and G. Our defense is called 13 S and G. It's not, so it would be what a lot of coaches would call 75. 75% because in our run and jump, we're not denying the ball in bounds. We're allowing the ball to come in bounds. So we call it our numerical system is 14 would be a hundred equal a hundred 13, 75, 12, 50, 11 would equal a three point line. So that's just how our numeric system goes. But we call it four on four, 13 S and G. And basically it's the old drill where you have four kids along the baseline, four kids foul line extended lined up. And Coach Carnes will throw the ball. And we don't – a lot of – I've seen – you know, we've done this before, but the disadvantage where the kid goes and touches the baseline now, it's four on three. Right. Similar to that, but what we're teaching, along with our fundamentals of our press, is if you can run and jump against four kids because you have to cover so much more right. ground yeah. and you don't have that extra body, yeah. then it's going to be so much easier to run when you get that fifth defender out there. Right, right. For offense, we believe, and we tell our kids, and I, I think it's the truth, doing these drills every day gets you to be able to handle pressure yeah, right. in a much easier way because you're going to have to go against our press full court yeah. on the offensive end too. Yeah. So that's one of the drills we do. It just, you know, we'll put different yeah. rules in. It depends if you have a Taylor Woods and Coach Carnes will throw her the ball. She'd catch it on a running start and cheat the system. So you have smart kids that'll figure out ways how to not allow them to a competitive edge. So that's kind of one of the fun things about coaching every day. Yeah. Now, Andy, um, you do this four on four, when you do this four on four, do you have anybody touch the baseline or do you just play live four on four 75? We play live four on four, just 75. We don't touch the baseline. And let's say that coach Carnes throws me the ball and I'm on in the right corner and you're the one across from me. You've got to come up. And your job is to make me put the ball on the ground at a high rate of speed. Okay. Yep. That's your job. Yeah. The other three kids, yeah. offensively, their job is just to get down the floor and score and play basketball. Yeah. Right. We put a rule in that in some days we enforce it more than others. And Coach Postax, my enforcer on this, we'll tell the offense, you've got four seconds to get the ball across half court. Yeah. Because I don't, we're not practicing clear out right now. Yeah. Okay. We're practicing our run and jump. Yeah. So we'll have different rules like that. But basically, the offense's job is just to get it down the floor and uh-huh. play basketball. Okay. Get pressure and the defense will be matched up and have to rotate. Okay. Um, and perform your jumps down less one potential defender. Okay. So, when, when you say less one potential defender, are you saying – oh, okay. I mean, because it's because it's not five on five. Yeah, you're yeah. not. so you're not touching the baseline still. Okay, I got it. Yep. 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 The, the person guarding yep. – the person with the ball's ball, – 
yep. that the ball goes to is guarding. Yeah, that's that's the on ball defender. Okay. Does the person who receives the ball, coach? This is a kind of a stupid question, but do you want them to have to handle it, or can they pass it right away? Well, we have kids who don't like to handle who will look to pass it. Correct. And we'll have the point guard if she doesn't get the ball, who's mm-hmm. not afraid to handle the ball, we'll come back to the ball. Uh huh. We have to cut that off right yeah. now. Yeah. You know, and teach those kids. Right. You've got to be able to handle. Yep. This is pressure. Yeah. Yep. So in that way, we're yep. we're helping. I think our non-confident ball handlers. Yep. Yep. You have to handle the ball. Yeah, I like so that. Yeah, we we players. yeah we do a, we do a lot of that. Coach, how do you score that game, and how long will that go? Um, once we get early in the season, we might play that for twenty minutes because that's our base right. teaching tool for that defense. How, how many kids on team? Will there be other kids coming in for those four, or is it just eight people? Well. The way because we're practicing with our JVs, yeah. so it's a perfect setup. We'll have I will give usually we'll play with twenty kids. Okay, let's say we have twenty. Yeah. So five varsity white, five varsity red. You have a sub. So yep. the next time sit down, you can sub in one. Yep. And then very quickly, if you only have ten kids, yeah, you're not going to be able to go very long. So yeah. we'll go down and back with varsity, and then JV will go down and back. Yeah. By the time varsity's back ready, they're refreshed and yep. ready to give you a solid yeah. down and back trip. Gotcha. So 22 teams uh-huh. is is the best way to play okay. that. And and how was that scored? If if my if my team goes down and scores and you come down and you don't score, did we just win? Is there a punishment or is it over? Well, we scored a bunch of different ways. You Got guys it. know you're trying to keep yeah. things fresh. <laughs> uh, yeah. Sometimes we'll yeah. say a lot of coaches and in like you guys, I've been to a lot of clinics and yeah. one thing that not necessarily bothers me, but is a different philosophy than what I have is uh-huh. I've had coaches who press, you know, let's say Tarkanian back in the, with his UNLV days would say, sometimes you're going to give up a layup. Yeah. That just comes with the territory. Yeah. I, I do not believe that at all. We're, we do not want to give up layups when we press. Okay. Um, you know, our, our kind of our theory is the best case scenario is we get a steal because yep. that's going to lead offense. Yep. If we don't get a steal, it'd be great if the other team took a quick perimeter jumper because right. I don't think that's a great shot, especially in girls' basketball. Right, right. And third and foremost, we tell our kids, if we don't get other, those other two things to happen, yeah. now they're going to have to play in what hopefully is the toughest half-court man defense that they're going to see all year. Yeah. Now, is it always that way? Right. No, but we're going to try to get to that point. Right. Coach, if I um, – I, one last question on this. I hate to belabor this, 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 but if you throw the ball to me – and I blow by my defender, what are your rotation rules, or is it just figure it out? It's kind of figure it out, but our rule is this, and we, it took us a while to, fig, to figure this out as coaches. And, and um, if you get blown off the dribble, blown by off the dribble, we call it getting carved. Okay. The jump has got to be off because now I got a ball handler at a full head yeah. of speed going straight down the court. If I come to jump that kid – yeah. They can go left, they can go right. Now I probably have gotten two kids beat. Yep. yep. So we're in trouble. So that's more of a hold down the cavalry. Yeah. You know, four on three or in a game yeah. it'd be yeah. five on four. Yeah. Until your partner gets back. Yeah. So yeah. That's gonna happen. That's right. one of the things, right. you know, I said I, I don't want to give up a layup, but yeah. you are gonna get beat off the dribble. Yeah. At times. So right. Right. we've kind of had to teach our kids the jump is now off because yeah. You know, I guess in volleyball they'd call that out of rotation. The, yeah. the system is broken, so yeah. to speak. Yeah, we, we, yeah, we, we. Uh, my term for that is umbrella. 
Uh, right. We, we want to go back and form an umbrella with the remaining people, which means kind of protect ourselves from the rain um, until we can get our other guy back. So, Coach, what's your second drill? You said three drills, and I and we stopped yep. you with all of our with all of our, all of our nitty gritty uh, questions here, Scott. <laughs> our second drill out of that four on four, we call it blind fast break. And so we take the kids who are on the baseline and we move them up beside the kids that are on the elbows and the foul line extended. Mm-hmm. And they all face, I like that. This is how quirky we are. Judged is the thrower in the first drill. Mm-hmm. I have the ball in the second drill mm-hmm. and they have to have their backs to me. So they're paired up white, red, white, red, white, yeah. red, white, red. Yeah. Across the foul line extended facing the basket. Uh-huh. So I'm behind them. They don't know where the ball is. They don't know where I'm at. Yeah. So I'll throw the ball anywhere in the gym, preferably for the drill. I'll throw it somewhere near the basket that they have to go get it. Okay. They can't move until I blow the whistle. So okay. the name is blind fast break because they can't see the ball. Okay. So when I blow the whistle, it's every man for themselves. Whatever team gets the ball, if white gets the ball, they're on offense. Okay. Now red's on defense. Okay. And one of the things that we do that I don't know how many people that play run and jump that do this is we're going to press make miss or turnover okay right. so if we're pressing we're going to press you every trip down the court yeah a lot of teams will only press after a make well our yeah. problem is we're not good enough to make a bucket every time so we can <laughs> our press yeah so probably i would say our most effective pressing is after a miss or a turnover okay. because the offense i haven't seen too many offenses that can set up their press break right a big kid rebounds the ball right we we've been able to make a pretty good living off of pressing off of missed shots. Yeah. So in that drill, you don't know the kids don't know who's going to be offense and who's going to be defense. So it's yeah. I call it quick change. You've got to yeah. yeah go from one mindset to the other. Right. And the kids love that because yeah. our only rule is this is the only time we say you're not allowed to get on the floor because it slows my drill down. Yeah. Yeah. So you can't dive on the floor, but it's a battle. Right. I'll throw the ball in the corner. There's no yeah. out of bounds. Yeah. Um, and are they coming? Are they coming back at the basket you were at, Coach? Or are they going? Got it, I'll throw it from their back. I'll throw it over their head, okay. typically. Okay. Blow the whistle. They go get it, and then they've got to go yeah. down court. Yeah. And yeah. Then they'll come back. Okay. So another but, another good thing about not diving on the floor is you're probably preventing injuries too. Oh, for sure. <laughs> that, that's a big one. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's the second one, and our third one is where we incorporate a little bit of rebounding. We'll, we'll do a little typical shell kids standing in the shell defense or offensive spots. Yeah. And we'll have our four inside kids run a little circle there in the key. Yeah. Yeah. And the coach is under the bucket and then he'll kick it out. Yeah. Kids will shoot it. Right. Um, make or miss. We're pressing. Okay. So they're, they're your press. You're practicing pressing on a live ball. Make if they make it. Yeah. And, or you're practicing pressing on a miss. Right. We're now in defense. And yeah. Um, and you're also you know, working on boxing out, correct, coach? Boxing out, yeah. you know, catching and shooting. And yeah. So we're, we're kind of incorporating a little bit of everything into that one. That's probably my favorite. It's probably the kids' least favorite because they got to, they're going to get smashed on a box out. And yeah. Not too many kids enjoy that. Yeah. But, yeah. And they're uh, always coming down the other way on that, right? That's always a yeah. transition drill. Yep. Yeah. They're, yeah. They're going down and usually yeah. coming back. Yeah. Okay. So those would be the three that we do every day that teach the things that I think uh, our kids yeah. need to know the quickest. Yeah. Coach, um, you, you said you like to play um, two, you know, a, a four and a five and maybe rotate another post in. And you also said something about Princeton offense. Um, 
that made that made me have a thought. Uh, when I see when I think of Princeton offense in my head, I, I think of having one post player, like a five man in the middle of that foul line, and right. I, I think of my other players kind of being more more uh, guardish, regardless of their size. I kind of think of them as being four interchangeable guards a little bit. How do you reconcile that? And do you follow Lenny Acuff or John Beeline, any of their stuff with your Princeton stuff? I follow John Beeline a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, Coach Acuff, I do not. Okay. Uh, but I will check that out. Yeah. You mentioned him. But um, kind of goes back to what I talked about earlier. Our fours are more glorified. They're the biggest wings we have. Yeah. Um, our fours have never been – since I've been at Wadsworth, I've never had a two-post system where we'd say, hey mm-hmm. – you, you six, two kids go down on the block and we're okay. going to run through route two in. We just okay. haven't had that. Okay. Um, you know, in 97, they had two, six, three kids that led them to the state championship. We've yeah. never had that. Right. We've been lucky. Uh, and Scott can attest to this to have one kid. Right. Right. So our fours are really wings. They're probably just okay. in terms of yeah. the numerical system in that yeah. spot. Yeah. Um, so, okay. and that's another reason we went to Princeton because, okay you know, our four is going to be yeah. right now. We have a, our four last year was a sophomore named Sienna Matheny who can yeah. shoot the lights out one of yeah. our best three right. point shooters. So right. I love that personnel mm-hmm. going against defenses who typically may have a bigger kid guarding them and don't want to stray from the basket or the paint. And then we'll just try to knock down some threes on them. So. Right. What's your favorite, what's your favorite action? I've run some Princeton stuff in the past, but I haven't gone to it for a couple of years. What's your favorite action off of that? Is it the flare or is it, um, you know, the slip, or is it guys kind of driving a, a hard closeout because you got everybody spread out? Is it the back door? What's your favorite action so far, Coach? Well, I think the prettiest action is the back door. Yeah. Um, if you can get that. Now, yeah. that we, we struggled a little bit with, you know, our kids wanted to hit that home run every time yeah. and throw that back door pass. Yeah. And a lot of that was it was our first year running a lot of it, and they were anxious to – do what coach wanted to do and thought that would be nice to get a layup every time. But <clears throat> I love anything that has back door. Yeah. Um, I've really become a fan. I really didn't use a lot of um, flare type actions in my game. Yeah. But I, I really have through studying the Princeton and, and incorporating it, get a lot of flare stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and with the, our personnel, our kids love it because we do have some kids that can shoot the ball a little bit. Yeah. So I love the flare stuff, but I, I guess as a whole, I just love the openness that it yeah. provides you down below the foul line, yeah. you know, yeah. um, giving you some room to attack and, and we right. try to tell our kids, listen, I think one of the things that being a set offense, it, a lot of the kids, here's a problem that we have if you were running a set and the kids know that they're the primary passer or just part of that set, mm-hmm. they don't, they stop becoming basketball players. Correct. Right. Yeah. And I think that's a, such a hard thing to tell the kids. You have to be a player at all times because right. if I, if I know that you're just going to be, as you guys know this, I'm not telling you guys anything, but that's one of the things that we've really had to work on is yeah. to ensure with so many sets that these kids aren't just seeing themselves as one piece of just a passer or a picker that they need to be basketball players. And I think that's helped us a little bit with the Princeton because I think there's yeah. some more opportunities to break off and maybe read what the defense is giving you. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's maybe one thing that, that has come out of this a uh, little bit of an adjustment towards that style that I think is going to help our kids. Yeah. 
Andy, I know our time's kind of running short, so I wanted to steer a different direction very quickly. And I, I want to talk to you about the opportunity you had to coach your daughter, Peyton. Um, you know, one of the best players in program history. And then she went on to play Division One basketball at New Hampshire. And now she's in the coaching game at the Division One level. Um, number one, what was it like co getting to coach her? And, and number two, maybe talk a little bit about um, how proud you are of what she's doing now with the game. Well, you know, I, I would say that, um, as I mentioned before, I've been very fortunate. We've won a lot of games, a lot of great kids. Parents have been great. What a community we live in. But I would say the coolest thing that I've ever experienced as a coach has been uh, been able to coach my daughter, you know. Um, no matter how many wins or things that happen, I don't think that anything can replace that. Uh, I was very leery before that. You know, I, I was debating whether – because when we moved here, she was in fourth grade. Mm -hmm. And so I had a little time to maul that over. And, um, you know, I guess it came down to, there was some time that I, that I thought, well, do I, should I do this? Is this going to work out for her? You know, you obviously want what's best for your kids. Is this something that is going to work out for her first and foremost? And once I got past that and decided that this is going to work out, it was the greatest thing I've ever experienced in coaching. Yeah. Um, you know, it helped that she was a pretty good player. Thankfully, you put in a lot of time. Yeah. Um, but the funny thing is, when she was a freshman, um, she played as a freshman, but kind of, I don't know if the word by accident or the phrase by accident would apply here. But when we got into our preseason, um, you know, in the summer, you take extra kids. You're taking some young kids along. Even if they don't play in your shootouts, you want them to experience that. And, yeah. hey, if you, we can get you in, we'll get you in. So yeah. she was one of those kids, and she yeah. played in the summer. And, I think in the summer we kind of saw that, you know, she, she's possibility, but we yeah. had some, a pretty good team. And um, we had some kids get injured in the summer and in the preseason. So that kind of opened the door for her. And we, we really, based on what she had shown us in the summer, she, she had uh, kind of was able to fill some of those injury spots. And I was still very reluctant, um, you know, because it's human nature. You worry that people are going to a, Right. get on her about it and and you know the old you're only playing because of or right, right. what they're going to say you know and yeah we know that who cares what people say but you we're human right yeah right and one of the things that really helped me was uh brad turson who's small town called plymouth yeah near, in richmond county was the basketball coach there and he coached his sons and brooke went on to be a very good player at uh, ashland au but I said to him before Peyton started playing, I said, what's your advice? I mean, what do you think about it? Right. I've been through it. And the one thing that he said was, and I'll, I would give this advice to anybody in the same situation. He said, don't penalize them because they're your kid. Right. And I never really thought about that yeah. that way. Yeah. And so when it came down to it and we were starting the season and, and coach Postak and Carnes and Smelcher, they said to me, you got to play her. I'm like, I don't know, you know, right. the coach's daughter. And they said, you got a player. She deserves it. Yeah. She's good enough. She's going to help us. And then that, that reflection on what uh, Brad Turson had said, yeah. you know, it was, I guess it, looking back, it, it probably was as smooth sailing as it could have been. And yeah. he obviously was a very successful player through a lot of hard work and right. um, it worked out great. But I, 
to answer your original question, it was fantastic. Yeah. It was fantastic. One of the, you know, highlights of my, not only career, but my life. Yeah. yeah. And um, now, you know, she, she's uh, crazy enough, I guess, uh, takes after me in that way to want to get in this business. And, um, you know, she played at New Hampshire for four years. They had a really nice team or junior and senior year. They won uh, more games in program history than any other classes in that two year span. So she was able to su- experience that success as a team. And then uh, two years ago, she was invited by uh, Coach Jackson up at Akron Women's to be a graduate assistant. She loved it. Uh, She was back home, which was awesome for us. Um, And then uh, got an opportunity this past summer at her alma mater. Her head coach, Maureen McGarrity, gave her a call out of the blue. I happened to be in the room. And, you know, Coach McGarrity said, hey, Peyton, I know you're at Akron and things are going well, but we have an opening here. I really – for lack of a better word, don't, I'm not uh, enamored with any of this people that I've uh, interviewed. We'd like you to be our assistant. And as they say, the rest is history. So, uh, you know, proud would be an understatement. Now, now that coach Peyton's coach from college, she just got a different job. She did. She took the head job at um, Holy cross, right? Which in terms of, you know, we won't get into levels of division one, but it's, it's a little bit of a step up They're mm-hmm. in the Patriot league. They yeah. uh, just get drafted in the WNBA. So wow. you know, it's a great job for her coach, Matt Mags. And, um, you know, situation kind of there is, I don't think Peyton would mind me telling you guys, this is coach Mags offered her a position at Holy cross, which I was very grateful to coach Mags. She didn't have to do that. Right. But, um, you know, Peyton's heart right now, she's, she's uh, staying on at, um, University of New Hampshire, where her buddy, Kelsey Hogan, who played at New Hampshire okay. and was Peyton's assistant coach, is, was the associate head coach. Yeah. So we're all hopeful that uh, Kelsey's going to be named the permanent head coach and, and Peyton's yeah. going to stay with her and try to get that program back to where it was when, when she was able to play there. So, Man, there's nothing better than that, Coach, when, when – uh... You know, I had a chance to coach my daughters in AAU, never at the high school level because I was on the boys' side, but just watching them grow up in the game. And, and my daughter coaches at Cathedral High School in Indianapolis right now um, and, and teaches English. So she's kind of in my in my line of work. And uh, there's nothing that makes you prouder than that, other than the fact that they're too far away. Right. And it's, it's hard to go to the games, but that's, that's pretty cool. I, I'll tell you, when I reflect on what you just said, Coach, how important was it that you had those guys behind you as your assistants to give you that faith um, to, to go ahead and play your daughter? And I appreciate the fact that you weren't going to just throw her out there just to throw her out there. Um, and, and I've always felt my son is in my program now. Um, and I kept him down at the freshman level this year uh, because he wasn't quite ready, and I didn't want to put him in a situation where it seemed as if his dad was thrusting him up at a, at a JV level when he wasn't ready. Um, however, I do keep in mind what you said. You don't want to penalize your own kid either just yeah. because they're playing for their dad, and, and sometimes I do that. So that, that gives me pause. But, you know, when you talked about the guy that gave you advice from Plymouth, it got me thinking about small-town basketball, and, and it, it made me want to very quickly – we have about 20 minutes left, Coach – it made me think about some of your influences as you grew up. You you played at Lucas, and I'm just curious: any coaches in your in your youth or um, in high school who had an influence on you, be they assistants or head coaches, that you kind of stole a few nuggets off of, or who whose uh, influence you you think is still with you? Oh, for sure. Uh, at Lucas, our our head coach was named Jim Stimmel. Okay, and he when I got to the high school level as a freshman was his first year. He was 22 year old, just out of college, played wow. at Taylor university in Indiana. Yeah. You know, famous for their silent night 
yeah. um, tradition. Right. But anyway, he was from Hicksville, Ohio, which is on the western border of Ohio. Yeah. Huge Bobby Knight fan. Huge Bobby Knight fan. So I quickly learned the importance of playing defense, playing with intensity, and all the things that you show, associate with Coach Knight. Yeah. So I would say Coach Stemmel probably was the guy that taught me the importance of defense. Okay. Um, played football in high school as well. Had a guy named Jerry Cooper. Uh, some of the little extra things that he would do for his kids. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I still do is called a senior dedication. Yeah. Which I'll always remember. Yeah. Uh, so special that I think that I have carried on. And I think it's yeah. just a little extra touch that coaches do for their kids. Right. Um, went to college. Yeah. Can, you, can you tell us about that? What is a senior dedication coach? Well, basically what it is, you, you talk to the kids before the season and you give them a, a schedule and you say, I want you individually. Don't talk about it up, you know, individually, you pick a game for that, for whatever reason might be a little extra special for you. Maybe right. it's rival or yeah. you know, whatever the reason. Yeah. And, um, you know, once you know that game, basically what I do is then I, I write up a little plaque with some words that I, you know, I'm not an English guy like you guys, but yeah. I try to put together something. Right. Um, that hits home to them. And then I always yeah. put a quote in the middle that kind of pertains. I know this year with one of our seniors, her um, dependability, she was yeah. there for four years. And I, I just put something to the effect of sometimes the best ability is dependability, you right. know? Right. So just trying to craft something heartfelt. Yeah. Um, you get them up before the game in front of the team. You read, uh, you read it off to them. And, yeah. you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty emotional guy and there's yeah. tears flow there and right. you know, just something that they have that yeah. I know was special to me and, and hopefully is special to them. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So, um, college, I played at Malone, uh, Hal Smith, who won hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of games there. I guess one thing I took away from him was his organization. Uh-huh. Um, the way his practice schedule yeah. was down to the minute. And yeah. one of the things that, as you guys know, it's so easy if you have a practice schedule to get off track. Yeah. And, um, excuse me, one of the things that I learned from him is you, you try your best to keep to that schedule. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's probably my coaching influences right there. And probably yeah. just as big, if not bigger, there were never coaches is just the way my parents raised me. Yeah. Um, my dad, I think, is probably the calmest guy I've ever met. <laughs> And my mom's got a little fire. So I think I have a little combination of those. So those, right. I think those two come through in my coaching a little bit. Absolutely. So then when you go on to Crestline on the boys' side, is there somebody that you coached under for a couple of years that influenced you a little bit as well? I did. Jim Bauer was the coach there. Yeah. Um, I actually still use his numbering system. Do you? In terms of defense, yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the thing I got from him was his scouting report set up. Yeah. Um, first time I'd really – worked for a coach who was that detail oriented in scouting yeah and drew up the scouting report went over it with the kids in those deep type of details yeah and that's carried over to this day for me and then right after Crestline, you then you went to <coughs> you went to mansfield madison right and then and then you had the assistants come in and, and ever since that uh history has been written so to speak so it's it's uh 23 years as a head coach it seems like just yesterday but um, yeah. you know I think you you as I mentioned before you're shaped by a lot of different things and people right. but those those folks yeah. certainly um yeah shaped my basketball coaching journey yeah coach booth you know a lot of people um 
kind of will come to a game, um, you know, tip of the iceberg type of thing. You know how it is. They, they, they might watch it for 35, 45 minutes or an hour, hour and 20, however long it takes. They go home and maybe they only get to see you play twice a year. Um, or those in the Wadsworth community might see you all the time. But what do you, what do you think a lot of people don't know about, about coach Andy Booth? Um, I would say probably if you're just coming to our games as a casual fan, you don't realize how much work goes on behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, how much time that I know people like you, Scott and yourself and myself put in yeah. to pro- to try to provide a quality product. I think that it doesn't always work out the way we want. We'd all like to win a state championship every year and go 22 and 0 in regular <laughs> season, but it's right. not that simple. And yeah, I just think that, um, as you guys know, the competitive side of a person mm-hmm. can really drive that um, time commitment and yeah. extra effort right. uh, behind the scenes that I don't think that the lay person would have any clue as to how extensive that can be. Yeah. And Scott, before you ask your question, you know, Andy, you just seem like a person of integrity. And as you know, the you're a program developer and you're a player development person. Um, and you want, you want to have a program that does it the right way. However, many times when you go down to the state tournament, you see teams and I don't, I don't even know who coached this team, but like Deer Creek or Deer Park on the boys side had like seven transfers three years ago and they won a state championship, you know? Um, and, and we've had a few kids transfer in the Hoban over the years, so I'm not trying to say transfers are always bad. Uh, we haven't had many. We've had one or two, or, you know, maybe. but um, And they weren't always even basketball players, per se, who lasted for four years. But in, in, in general, um, how do you think the culture of basketball is changing, and what can we do to hold on to people who do it the right way? Well, I, I think that's a problem for sure, and I think that – there are coaches and people who are great coaches and great influencers of young people that probably have and will down the road get out because of that very thing. Yeah. There's a frustration that builds up and um, yeah, sometimes it just feels like you're knocking your head against the wall and, right. and not getting any, any different results. And, and it can be tough. And um, I think if you, if you let it bother you, it's going to, yeah. Um, you know, I guess, the way I've kind of looked at it is, you know, you can only control what you can control yeah. and wasting a lot of time worrying about what others are doing. It's, uh, yeah. it's not getting you anywhere. That's just kind of my philosophy. Is it yeah. frustrating? Yes, yeah. it is. Yeah. Um, is it good for the game? No, it isn't. Right. Uh, is it good right. for kids? I don't think it is either. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that teaches kids that when things don't go their way, yeah. there's, uh, you can always go somewhere else and things will get better. And that's just not real life. And, yeah, I think that the kids that it's not their fault. They're yeah. they're you guys know the adults are the ones that are allowing this to happen, or yeah, um, maybe in some cases guiding this to happen. And sure, uh, you know how do we stop that? I don't know. I yeah. think if there was a way to stop it. The OHSA and and yeah. uh, the governing bodies would have already done it. Yeah, but um, you know that that's just my personal thought. Is it's it's troublesome for the game and. Um, you know, hopefully good conscience wins out in the end. Yeah. Okay, Andy, I know you're going to be politically correct about this. Um, <laughs> you sure? <laughs> well, you don't have to be. A, it's just our podcast, yeah. all right? Okay. Um, 
the OHSA just announced that um, the girls' state basketball tournament is going to be moved to UD Arena for the next three years. Um, I've heard from different people. Um, and, and, you know, the OHSA does a, a fantastic job of choosing venues that they're allowed to play in. I've heard from multiple people that Ohio State no longer wants to host um, high school events across the board. Um, and UD Arena, a lot of people think, is the best basketball venue in the country, along with maybe Hinkle Field House and the Palestra. Sure. Um, okay. I've always thought, and I've probably been to 25 years of girls' state basketball tournaments, that the perfect setting for the girls' state tournament is the Field House in Canton. Oh, now, I love it. Right. I, I, I love St. John's Arena, but unless Wadsworth is playing Berlin Highland, which is an impossibility, um, you're not going to get six, seven, eight thousand people for a game. Right. Normally, for a state Final Four girls game, you're maybe getting three to five thousand people. Yep, that. How do you feel about the change? And would you, you know, the, the other thing I was thinking is that Trent Arena in Dayton seats about 41 to 4,500. Right. What would you think about a more intimate setting to make the girls, I guess, ticket uh, a hot commodity and you could even sell it out and create some atmosphere? Well, I think you raised some great points. And I'm going to first talk about, <clears throat> excuse me, location. Uh-huh. I think when you move it from a centrally located spot, it's not good for the game. Because when I think about certainly right. our situation in Northeast Ohio, and then I look at Northwest Ohio, if I'm driving down to, from Toledo or Mentor or East Lake North to Dayton, you're going to lose a lot of your fans. Correct. And that impacts the student athlete experience. Mm-hmm. It's pretty honestly say that one of the reasons we got into this business is to help kids and help them have them enjoy some experiences Right. As high school kids. Right. Now that's a grand picture thing, but whenever yeah. when you move that, and let me say that I'm a big fan of Jerry Snodgrass, and yeah. I know that he would make Amen. that decision alone. Yeah. Right. And I have heard, like you, that Ohio State is trying to yeah. ease out of that, which is disappointing, number one, to me. Right. And I know Jerry Snodgrass and his great people down there at the state are doing what they can do. And, and Correct. my guess is that was probably one of the only, the best. Let me rephrase that. It was probably the best option that they had. Yeah. Well, so I don't have ill feelings towards that staff at all. Yeah. Um, but when you move it to an area that is, I don't know if inaccessible is the word, but not as accessible yeah. to basketball fans, Right. I don't think it's a good idea. And yeah. I don't think it is best for the game. Right. Uh, I love what you said about the Canton Fieldhouse. Now, if I was at Cincinnati Princeton, I wouldn't <laughs> want to be – the Canton right. Fieldhouse either. I think the Canton yeah. Fieldhouse might be the perfect yeah. setting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, I thought about this when the announcement came out um, in 2017 when Ashland won the National Division II Women's Championship with one of our players down there, uh, Jody Johnson. They played at Ohio Dominican, and I don't know what that seats, but I'm guessing five to six thousand. Right. You want to talk about a place that was jam packed and electric? Yeah, right. And I thought then because I, I don't, nece- I'm not necessarily a fan of playing at the Schottenstein Center because right, right. Um, 
when, as you mentioned, when Wadsworth goes down there, they probably, the, the state loves that because they're going right. to bring the biggest girls crowd. They can. Correct. Yeah. That being said, when it's still three fourths empty, yeah, it's not a, <clears throat> for a basketball traditionalist guy like me, right. Not a great setting. No, I agree. I would rather they play at St. John's just to make it yeah. small. Yeah, me too. But if you're going to move uh, the setting, don't move it to one of the corners of the state. Right. Sort of. And explore maybe some areas around the Columbus area so we can keep it more centrally located. And for girls, now I don't know if it's going to work for guys, uh, explore mm-hmm. like an ODU or a Capitol or someplace where you can get three to 6,000 and you can pack the place and it's just a letter. Right. That would be what I would do Yeah. if I were king for a day. Yeah, yeah. right. And, and okay, that was the tough one. Now, here's my final question for you. You got to take us down memory lane and, and talk about your state championship run a few years ago. Um, as a basketball fan, as a Wadsworth teacher, is a lifelong resident. Uh, just a highlight of my life to watch that happen. Um, but it, it was magical because I'm not so sure that that was in, in geez, I don't want anybody to take this the wrong way, but you've had a lot of great teams, but maybe you faced the toughest matchup in the state that this, that particular year, right? or maybe somebody got injured or things unlucky or whatever. But that year, it just seemed like destiny took over. And I think you had a player in Jody Johnson who had the best run of tournament basketball I've ever seen on the girls' side. Well, there's no, you touch on a number of points. And what I'll start on is this, that that year, you know, like you guys do, you try to schedule the best competition you can find over the, over the summer. And so we try to go to as many big time events as we can. So we get to know who the best teams in the state are pretty easily because you see them all summer long. And I really thought that after that summer that we had a pretty good shot to get there, number one. Mm-hmm. But I I kind of thought that the two best teams in the state that I had seen that year were Lakota West and Mason. Correct. In my mind, and this is no slight to our kids, but this is just my honest recollection, we were not better than those two teams. So once we started tournament play, we had a really nice regular season. Um, We had a great mix of three seniors, Jody Johnson, Jenna Johnson, her twin sister, and Laurel Polito, who played their roles beautifully, and then a great sophomore class who featured numerous college players. So we had a great blend. And once we got into the tournament, and you guys know this, once the tournament draw comes out, you kind of look and see, you kind of forecast down the road. Right. And once things started shaking out, people winning, losing, and you started to see who you might play, Mm -hmm. once once we got to where, okay, Reynoldsburg is going to be our opponent in the state semifinals, I thought to myself, and this, I mean – not to sound overconfident, but I really thought, hey, you know, I think we should. You know how that goes. You should right. win. Right. Doesn't always happen. But if we play well enough, we can make it to the state finals. Yeah. yeah. If we make it to the state finals, it's going to be Mason or Lakota West. Yeah. We're going to have to play over our head. Yeah. So, you know, things kind of shake out as the way they should. And, and I know the girls, we, the regional finals, we had gotten beat four years in a row by Toledo Notre Dame, which yeah. was just 
excruciating, obviously. Right. And um, they got knocked off by Toledo Whitmer. So we ended up playing Whitmer in the regional finals. Yeah. And uh, it was one of those games, I think, you know, you, you have to win a game a little bit ugly to keep going. Right. And that was that game for us. We didn't play great. Yeah. Whitmer had a great game plan, but we won it, got to state. And I felt pretty good about Reynoldsburg. Like I said, if we had played well, we, we should be in good shape. And Jack Bertel is a great buddy of mine. He's from Ashland, which is probably 15 minutes from where I grew up. Yeah. And, um, you know, so we end up winning that state semifinal game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we ha- we have Mason, which is – we were – ended up 28-1, and one, and the one loss was Mason. I know you guys know this, but I'm just kind of spitting some history out. And um, – <clears throat> Mason beat us in the classic in the country. Yeah. And the thing I remember about that game is in the first half, you know how funny things run through your mind as the game's going on. Yeah. The funny thing that ran through my mind at the end of the first half is I think we're about to set the lowest point scored <laughs> in the history of the classic in the country. Cause it was 19 to four <laughs> and we steal it and lay it in at the bu- first half wow. buzzer, get the six. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And you want to talk about, trying to crawl under the bleachers at the Perry Reese Center. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, we were getting embarrassed and we were yeah. no we were not in their class. That yeah. was that yeah. simple. And there's probably fifty college coaches on the edges, right? Oh, it's packed as usual. Yeah. yeah. These guys these fans are pretty knowledgeable yeah. down there. They're probably thinking yeah. this guy's a buffoon. Yeah, I, I, I have I, felt I have felt the same way, coach. Isn't that a horrible feeling when you're getting your butt kicked? And, and there's nothing you can do. <laughs> I know you haven't had that feeling as much yeah. as I have, but <laughs> those are the ones you remember. I'll tell yeah. you that. But uh, we we end up losing by eleven. We played better. We end up losing okay. by eleven. And you know, you I don't know about you guys. I'm sure you do. But we try to, and certainly in seasons like that, try to keep the eye on that prize because yeah. we didn't have a goal of winning a state championship. That we thought we could get there. Let's hey, why not throw that out there? I mean, yeah, handle the pressure or don't handle it. So. After that game, we put in our locker room all over plus 12, which yeah. we got beat by 11, meaning right. we need to be 12 points better somewhere down the line. Right. So, as fate would have it, we play Mason in the state championship. Yeah. And um, I think a huge key for us before that game was each one of the coaching staff took turns talking to the kids in our walkthrough yeah. and just trying to instill in the fact that embrace the situation and leave nothing to chance yeah you know throw the old yeah. throw caution to the wind because what do we have to lose yeah. everyone in the state thinks that we're going to get drilled right so what do we have to lose play loose yeah turn it loose yeah let it fly right if you feel good about it yeah i feel good about it you yeah. know that's that's what i told him i remember pregame right. i said if you feel good about a shot i feel yeah. good about it. yeah you know you're kind yeah. of instilling them that hey who cares right Right. No, it can't be any worse than the first time. Right. And we win the opening tip, make one pass to Jody Johnson. She scores a layup, and then it's off to the races. I think yeah. we're up like 15 to 1. Wow. We're up wow. 30 to 16. We wow. play out of our mind. Yeah. We've got kids doing fake <laughs> step back threes yeah. that are knocking them down. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> one little funny side note you mentioned, Besiris. Rob Matul is a great head coach at Mason. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I'm, I'm buddies with him and we played a little bit of slow pitch softball back in the day and around Mansfield, but yeah, I'm standing there before the game. And I said to Rob, I go, you know, I guarantee this is the first time in the history of the state tournament boys or girls that a Lucas graduate and a Bucky Russ graduate. 
<laughs> exactly. We laughed. Yeah. We laughed our heads off. But second half, they come back. Mason, Rob being the great coach they, that he is, comes out with a 1-3-1. Yeah. And uh, we were befuddled. Yeah. We <clears throat> looked like we had no clue against how to play against zone. Yeah. And um, a couple key plays in the game. Um, we, we got a couple steals off of our run and jump and yeah. got the great point guard in foul trouble. Right. Uh, just played out of our minds, really. We scored yeah. 60 points after scoring like 30 against them the first time. We scored yeah. 30 in the first half, 30 in the second. And I really believe, Scott, it was kind of fate and some destiny going on yeah. there for us to, yeah. you know, I don't know how many times we would have beat them out of 10, but yeah. we only had to beat them once that day and right. it worked out for us. And it was. What was the final, coach? 60 to 51. Wow. So wow. Had that 12 plus that nine. We were yeah. 21 points better that Yeah, night. that's amazing. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Um, I had a similar experience, but we didn't win a state championship, but we won a regional final against a team that had beat us by 27, Youngstown Mooney. Yeah. Um, so that was that was pretty cool when we, when we had them again. Hey, um, Coach Booth, did, did Johnson end up winning a national championship in college and a state championship in high school then? She did. The, <clears throat> that is the, amazing, isn't it? The weird thing about that is her freshman year, they won the national championship. They went undefeated. Okay. So, and then they went, I think, undefeated in through her sophomore year. They didn't win it, right. but they were undefeated. So wow. she had won back <laughs> to high school like yeah. some crazy number of 70 straight games. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Um, and this year they, they were undefeated, ranked second in the country or senior yeah. year. Yeah. And, of course, they didn't get to play it. But um, wow. she's wow. probably one of the most decorated Division two yeah. years yeah. in history. I mean, just right. incredible. Coach, we have to wrap up, but, you know, um, I went to the Mount Union Boys Division Three NCAA Division Three Sweet Sixteen game, and and they 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 rotate their sites, and there's always a host site. And I thought that might you know we might have to go that route in OHSAA basketball because it does lend to being more fan of having more fans there. Um, they earn that right to host, and I'm not sure how it's chosen. For, for sure, I don't know how it's chosen. It might be league championships or whatever. But that that's something that I think we need to go to. Maybe, perhaps. I know there's that home court advantage part that's really a, a pain in the butt to, to grapple with. But at least it's a great fan experience, right? Um, and and I, I would rather have my kids playing in a – even if I'm playing against you, Coach, I would rather play at Wadsworth in front of 5,000 people than play at the Schottenstein in front of 2,000. I'm not talking about the state championship, but, I mean, maybe oh. until, you know, maybe in the regional ball. I don't know. There's got to be a better idea when we get there, but I also love Jerry Snodgrass. Coach, two last questions for you. Um, number one, have you ever um, been tempted to leave for a, for a college job and is that something on your horizon at all? And secondly, have you ever wanted to switch back over to the boys, even though you've really etched your place in girls' state history? Two great questions. Um, number one on the college front. Um, at this point, too old. Too old <laughs> to do that. Uh, but I do have a fallback plan because my daughter and I's plan is this. I will be able to retire in six, seven years. I have okay. seven more years left. Yeah. And hopefully she'll be high enough on the food chain that yeah. she'll be able to pull some weight and maybe her old man can be the underling to her. Yeah. Um, I'd love to do that as a retirement job, oh, coach yeah. college basketball. I've always wanted to, but never yeah. really <clears throat> thought seriously enough about it. And at this right. point uh, right. to do that, it would be, would be yeah. tough, but that's something maybe down the road. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> in terms of switching back to the boys. Yeah. Uh, I don't think so. And here's why. I got my fellow that coaching AAU 
boys yeah. with my son, which I love the experience, but yeah. um, people ask me all the time, what's the difference? And here it is in a nutshell for okay. me. Okay. Um, boys, you'll tell them something to do. They'll nod like they're saying yes and then go out and do what they want to do. <laughs> the girls will nod and say yes and actually go do it. So right. that's the right. simple yeah. format. Uh, and like I mentioned at the beginning of the show, patience is yeah. um, not getting better for me. It's getting worse, and I don't know right. if I could handle that. That might be yeah. too much for yeah. me. Yeah. Coach, when there were Wadsworth boys transitions, did you ever think about throwing your hat in that ring, or was it just too good on the girls' side? I'm just curious. Um, there were discussions about that, but mainly not from my side. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, I quickly yeah. put them to rest. Absolutely. So, Coach, um, I'm going to wrap up now. Scott, do you want to no, go ahead? Just, no, Andy, uh, you're the best. Uh, your time is valuable. You were fantastic i mean from an x and o standpoint philosophy standpoint uh you have so much to give and share and uh i I just it's just so good that you're still coaching with the same passion and integrity um and calmness even if you don't have the same patience as you did (laughs) 20 years ago so keep doing your thing uh, we're blessed to have you in the area yeah. and your teams are just a joy to watch play. And, well, and go ahead, coach. Coach, from my standpoint, I don't know you as a professional like Scott does, but I can just tell you this. Um, there's so much self-righteousness in our profession um, and guys who love to blow themselves up on Twitter and, and talk about how great they are. Um, and you are, you are the, the antithesis of that, which for those of you listening who aren't English majors, that means the opposite. Um, Coach Booth, I mean, you're just a guy who has nothing but integrity, is going to roll his sleeves up and develop a hell of a program, doing it the old-fashioned way. Would you probably learn from your parents and your roots in Richland County and some of your experiences with your assistants? You got to a new place, and you developed trust with three guys, and you guys ended up getting to a state championship and going to so many regional finals, got down to Columbus, but that 2010 state championship, I'll tell you what, man, well-deserved. Um, and I'm, I'm, I want to go back and watch that now and watch it with a whole new eye. I did watch that game, but I didn't know you as a person, and now I feel like I do. So thank you so much for spending this time with us, and kudos to you and everything that you represent at Wadsworth High School. Well, I tell you what, I want to thank you guys for starting this podcast. Uh, you know, until Scott talked to me about it, I, I was unaware. I wish I would have been. I would have been a follower a lot sooner, but um, <laughs> it's very interesting, and, and I appreciate the take not only sports-wise, and specifically basketball in this case, but also getting inside the classroom a little bit because, uh, you know, obviously, as you guys know, that's that's just that's a very important part of the job. And I'm uh, just thankful that you guys took the time to have me on. Absolutely. And, and when there's so much pain in our society and, and, and kids who are going through turmoil that they really don't deserve, um, again, happy that there are people like you that from their eight to three day, the kids have a, a rock uh, that they can lean on and somebody that can help 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 them find some grace and peace in their life um, and and hopefully they find that and I know they find that in coach Booth's classroom and then in the gymnasium this has been the teacher coach with TK Griffith and Scott Matthew Callahan our guest Andy Booth